to Season 2, Episode 7 of The Behavioural Investor. My name's Will. It's 6am here in Doha. We have Ben, my co-host. Ben, what's the time? It's a lovely day. It's 1pm in sunny Brisbane. I'm not too hot given this time of year. We have our special guest here today, Jagdeep Mavi from Toronto. What's the time where you are, Jagdeep? 10 p.m. Zero degrees centigrade. It's a nice, uh, it's actually kind of warm for early March night here. Spoken like a true Canadian, calling zero degrees warm. (laughs) It's all relative. It's all relative. It'd be a national emergency if it was zero degrees in in Doha. (laughs) What appealed to us about you, Jagdeep, is just reading your Twitter profile. It says here you're a former quant HF and ETF sales, building the holy grail of investing using ETP and that you have 13 non-correlated assets and counting. Sure. When I say HFs, you're very character constrained on Twitter. So, you know, you're using a lot of abbreviations. I, I find it kind of obnoxious in terms of like using all these abbreviations, but uh, it is what it is. So HF stands for hedge funds. So my background is that I started work in the finance industry by uh, connecting with a group of advisors that were running a purely quantitative strategy using ETFs as the vehicle by which they were expressing views in the market. And so it was kind of like a global macro quantitative strategy. I linked up with them and from that beginning, they eventually launched their own hedge fund and asset management firm. And I, I went along with them in that process of building out that firm. From there, I moved on to ETF company, main ones here in Canada. The only one actually that does leveraged ETFs and, and all that stuff. And so from there, I ended up basically going back to school. I hadn't finished off an undergrad business degree from years and years and years ago. And I was a recent father. Uh, my son now is almost three. And I just decided that I didn't want to be a parent that was a, a university dropout. And so I, I decided I wanted to go back, finish that off and, and move away from my, my role had been sales, uh, business development is what we call it, fancy name for sales. You know, after seeing all these different portfolios that advisors and asset allocators were building, understanding that there's this kind of blindness that people have in terms of there's this been this revolution basically over the last 20 years in terms of the ETFs coming of age and, and becoming this force within finance. And along with that, the lowering of trading costs, these can be incredibly powerful tools. And they're just being, in my opinion, underutilized, especially the ones that are kind of these hidden gems beyond just the stock and, and bond type of uh, vanilla ETFs that can be used to express views and, and gain exposure to asset classes and strategies that previously had only been the domain of like the most elite institutional investors. We've, we've now achieved a level of innovation in finance where they have trickled down to a level where someone with, you know, a Robinhood account can go log on and, and put this in their portfolio and build something literally that's world-class in terms of the, the risk-adjusted returns that are, that are achievable um, and right up there with the, the best hedge funds in the world and do it all at very you know, low cost and also more importantly, be completely accessible even with a portfolio of let's say a couple thousand dollars. That's actually kind of mind-boggling when you think about it in terms of the, the, the level 
that all of this has progressed now and the way that investors can now express views on markets all over the world. And even for me, it's still kind of like staggering when I really sit down and, and think about it and look at what are the, the things that are available to us as, as retail investors. So that's how I'm approaching things. I, I myself have been managing my family's money for years, made a lot of mistakes, and we can get into all of that. Um, I actually today, earlier today, was listening to your season two, episode one. I think it was Will Gets Put to Work or whatever it was. And I thought that was your best podcast yet out of all the ones that I heard. Uh, I loved it because, you know, that's my most really... honest one. <laughs> right. But, but, but you guys hit the nail on the head for a lot of different things. And I totally found myself nodding in agreement. So, you know, and I think that's how it works. You know, if you want to be a good investor, you have to take your lumps, you have to pay your tuition. And that tuition yeah. is always going to be going through some type of very painful experience that's the the forge that kind of like you know you get burned alive in and and out of it comes this person that has learned something and and is wiser um so you obviously had that journey with bitcoin uh for me it was investing in the tech bubble back in 2000 uh and i was investing my parents portfolio and that was you know a lot of lessons learned and and in very much informed my investing life after that in terms of subsequent to that my journey and how i think about building portfolios and investing money uh rule number one is don't get destroyed you know and and i yeah. think that's that's the thing that most people are especially if they're new to investing and they're new to investing particularly in this point in time where we are in the market cycle where we are in the debt cycle uh, it's easy to get sucked in to the things that are shiny, the things that have gone up a lot, but there will come a point at which you have to pay that tuition. And and I think there's a lot of people that they haven't experienced that yet, and they will. Yeah, I think it's great timing, actually, that we've found you, because I reckon in the past few days, there's been a few people who've paid the learning tax. Um, and you, you brought up the popularity of ETFs and, and the um, the term shiny, um, I think that applies to the collection of ARC ETFs managed by Cathy Wood, mm -hmm. um, which have all started to return to worth. Right. And, and I, you know, nothing against ARC. It, it seems to be like a, a favorite pinata right now for FinTwit to, to bash on, on ARC and all of that. They, what they've done in terms of gathering assets is incredible, right? And I've been on the other end of that in terms of like, you know, trying to gather assets into a into a into a product and uh you know their success is is really just remarkable in in that regard and 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 all of that but um you know beyond arc i, I think it's more in general this idea um that stonks always go up and and you know this is this is the narrative that pervades right now because a lot of these um, people that are coming into investing today are, you know, um, I guess not even millennials, they're Gen Z, Gen Z for us Canadians, Gen Z for everybody else, I guess. But they, they don't... say Z too. <laughs> I'm sorry? Australians are civilized, we say Z as well. Oh, do you? Yeah, you guys speak the Queen's English, that's yes, right. Yes, um, yes. So, so it's one of those things where... Um, you know, I, I went through that as a 20 year old, um, you know, back in 2000. And at that time, you know, the narrative was there's the old economy and there's the new economy, right? And, and everything was going to be eaten alive by the dot coms of the world. 
we don't need to worry about commodities. Like how barbaric is it that there's a company that's pulling metal out of the ground and, and you know, cutting down trees and, and hewing oil and stuff. So uh, we didn't need it. We didn't need commodity stocks anymore. We don't need, you know, banks. We don't need um, manufacturing anymore. None of that matters. All that matters is bits and bytes. Um, I lived through that. And in fact, here in, here in Canada, you know, 40% of the TSX at one point became Nortel. And Nortel was one of the major networking stocks. It was our version of Cisco, you know, up in the north. And if you can imagine that, you know, even if you're an index investor, 40 cents of every dollar you were putting into, into the index was tied to this one company. And if you look at what happened to somebody that was in Finland, uh, I think at some point Nokia was like 70% of their index, right? That's how big the tech bubble was at that time. I didn't realize that. That's incredible. I yeah. wonder what the Australian equivalent was. I have no idea. You'd have to go back and look. But um, so, so you know, it, it sucked everybody into this, right? It, it, like even if you were just an index investor, you got sucked into it. But even worse, you know, I, I was like, oh, forget about the old economy. We need to be, you know, going into NASDAQ 100. That's what we want to own. And the NASDAQ 100, you know, peaked in basically March of 2000 um, and subsequently went on to lose 80% of its value over the next three years or so. Um, and it took about 14 years to get back to even if you bought at the peak. And that's right around, like I bought a significant portion of, of uh, NASDAQ 100, the triple Qs for my parents and their portfolio. That would have been probably around January of, of 2000. Right. So, so for three months, uh, we were happy and then you know, everything started to fall. And, uh, and eventually it, it took a while for the S&P to, to kind of, uh, it was lagging behind that, that sort of initial tech bubble bursting. But the S&P had its, had its pain as well. You know, it took something, I think it was something like 12 years, 10 years. Like it was a lost decade for the S&P 500 as well, because it was a tech bubble. You had 9-11, you had the Iraq war. Then you know everything recovered, um, and 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 the Federal Reserve had uh, basically brought down interest rates to keep the economy from imploding after the tech bubble and 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 9/11, but that created a new bubble, which was the housing bubble, right? And then eventually the housing bubble burst, and you had the global financial crisis. You basically had you know a full ten if not more years, where as an investor, you were completely flat during that period of time. So you know I I think that kind of pain a lot of investors haven't invested through that. And so they, until you experience that, you, you don't learn to kind of understand risk and what risk really is. And losing 80% of your money and waiting 14 years to, to get back to even is, is, is painful. And, and so that's why you wanna have a portfolio that's diversified beyond just stocks. Obviously bonds are a good place, but bonds are also not a place of safety right now because of what's happened in terms of the quantitative easing, printing of money, near zero, if not negative real interest rates. Um, you know, there's 20 trillion of global debt right now that is negatively yielding. And, and some of that is even corporate, or in fact, big chunks of that is corporate debt. That's staggering when you think about that. So. You know, that's why bonds right now aren't necessarily this sort of, they're normally the safety valve for your portfolio. And I think, you know, my sort of thesis and, and what I sort of try to explain to people is that you need to have further diversification. You need to have other assets in your portfolio beyond just stocks and bonds so that it protects you in the case that bonds don't do what they're supposed to do traditionally. 
Put another way, um, possibly bonds will go through a period of volatility, just like stocks, and therefore, in seeking to minimize volatility, perhaps uh, one could turn to other non-correlated assets. Right. Exactly. And and you know, I I, um, I was just like taking a look at some of the historical returns for like a, a 60-40 portfolio. And on a on an inflation adjusted basis, on a real return basis, you know, the real pain point in the 20th century was actually, you know, 1966 to 1981. And on a real return basis, you annualized at a negative 36 basis points per year for that 16 year period. And what's fascinating to me is that like I saw somebody tweeting about this and that's what I was kind of confirming is that if you retired in 1929, you actually would have been okay, even with a 60-40 portfolio. You didn't run out of money. You would have been fine. The, the real pain point comes in 1966. If you retired then, you would have basically run out of money after like 15 years, depending on how much money you had and how much you're withdrawing. But if at any point during your retirement, you hit that 16, 17-year window, you're screwed. You're done. Um, Wait, is, is this... I'm just looking at the chart. So I've got 66, I'm in trading view, and I'm 66 to 70, 74, it went down. So it was lower in 74 than 66. Is that sort of what you're saying? Well, I'm, I'm saying, but more importantly, you have to adjust for inflation during this period of time. So okay. on a real return basis, bonds got destroyed, right? Yeah. And they correlated with with stocks in a positive way. They okay. also did this. They also did this in the '90s, but nobody noticed or cared because both stocks and bonds were going up, right? But when stocks and bonds go down together, it's a yeah. it's not a good time, especially if you're doing a 60/40 portfolio. And I, I think my issue is with this um, what I would call this this recency bias in the sense that since 1982. If you look back in time, 6040 looks fantastic, right? It, it, it's the place to be. And is it any wonder that if I go to basically any bank in Canada and, and look at any kind of you know, average Canadians or Americans portfolios, almost 90% of the people out there have a 6040 portfolio. And that makes sense because you know it's done well over that significant period of time, but that doesn't mean it's always going to do well. And and you can run into this, like I said, this window where like from sixty six to eighty one, that portfolio. If you're a retiree, you're done. Like you're going to be eating cat food at the end of that. So that's the concern that people should have: is that you know is is this thing built robustly enough to withstand a period of time that's out of sample in terms of you know this this window that everyone seems to be looking back at and and you know i think the regulators also play a role in this you know i have seen this where you know the the what blew my mind was that at the etf company i was working at you know we we got this memo where suddenly all these equity etfs that we have were, went from high risk to medium risk. And it made no sense to me. I'm like, well, so what happened here? And they're like, well, because there's a rolling window, look back that they do, the regulator does. So over 10 year window, they're gonna look at what the volatility and all of that was. And this was 2018. So what happened 10 years ago, 2008? And so that has fallen off the, 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 the window. And now suddenly these, these products go from being high risk to medium risk. And that actually means something because now the advisors that are putting these into client portfolios, they can put more equities in their models according to the banks and according to the regulators, you know, internal um, uh, control systems uh, without any kind of repercussions. Like that's totally fine, right? But 
it's, it just blew my mind because we know what happened in 2008. That, that history isn't suddenly erased. It just went off the model that the regulator is using to model risk. And so, you know, that's the type of thing that I think can make people very vulnerable is thinking that like the regulator has their back or that their advisor has their back or that the bank does. That sounds incredible, literally short-sighted. It- <laughs> yes, yes. And, and it's I'm just like, that's nuts. And, and so I think you really want to think like an engineer in terms of if, if you're building a bridge, right, you're looking back over the last, like over the last 100 years, 200 years, what's the worst storm? What's the worst earthquake? You know, those are the types of metrics that they're looking at to, to build something like the Golden Gate Bridge or, or something equivalent. And, you know, the idea that we would truncate you know, our, our look back to the last 30 years, because that's what's most convenient or whatever the, the reasoning is, I don't know why they do that, um, just is kind of just mind boggling to me. And, and in fact, you know, the, the worst thing is to always be trying to drive looking in the rearview mirror, right? What we want to be thinking about, if we take that bridge analogy, is that the world has changed over the last century. We have global warming now, and weather is probably going to get more extreme, not less extreme going forward. So whatever that 200-year or 100-year storm is, if you really want to be conservative, you should be doubling whatever that that sort of, you know, storm looked like whatever the high water mark was right what like what how high was the flooding how high was or how strong was the earthquake you want that margin of safety right in in terms of like how bad can things actually get and and what does it look like in terms of how does that play out um to my portfolio or to the to the to the bridge that i'm constructing so and, and you won't know the difference between someone that has built a bridge to that specification versus one that's been built to the sort of normal specification until that event happens. And I think that's the really interesting thing is that you have no idea looking at that portfolio until it, it hits that point of turbulence and, and real test. Um, you will have no idea the difference between that portfolio versus the one that, that seems to be robust or is, you're told is robust. Um, so yeah, that I think those are important concepts is that we have to be truly structurally diversified, not just uh, superficially. Owning a thousand different stocks and owning a thousand different bonds is not true diversification. So you need to have something that is structurally and fundamentally inversely correlated with some of the other assets that you have. So I, I think a great example of that, uh, it's something that's stood the test of time as a, as a non-correlated asset to stocks and bonds, and to me is one of the main pillars is gold, right? And, and I know everybody has their opinions on gold and some people hate it, some people love it. I, I don't care. I'm not a gold bug. I'm, I'm not a gold uh, bear. But when I look at the numbers, if I put that in as an asset and it doesn't have to be a lot, you know, you could put 10% in, that's enough to help, you know, basically save you during a period like the 1970s. Or more importantly, it's just this, this thing that's non-correlated. And so that's sort of my mantra. Um, if you go to my like Twitter profile, I have a video there linked and it's to Ray Dalio talking about putting together non-correlated assets. And you know, that's sort of my guiding principle in terms of how I approach things is you know, the thing that goes in has to provide some type of benefit. And it doesn't necessarily have to boost returns. It just has to make the portfolio more robust and more diversified. That's what I care about. Just on that topic, I mean, you started the conversation talking about the diversity of ETFs that are available and that most investors at the moment do the 60-40 between equities and bonds. What other 
products are there and you've touched on gold. Um, what else is out there? And when, as soon as you said gold, I suddenly thought Bitcoin. Um, so maybe a comment on that as well and whether you see that as being too speculative or at the right percentage, it's okay in, the, in, a, in a broad portfolio. Right. Um, yeah, no, I, I think Bitcoin, absolutely. You, you, can, you can put that in a portfolio. I, I literally think you can put almost anything in a portfolio as long as you bet size it correctly. So, you know, what I try to look at is through the lens of volatility contribution, right? So you literally, you know, when I look at my portfolio, I'm, I would add, I think somewhere between one to 5% is kind of the range that, that most portfolios are, are, would be able to accommodate. Bitcoin as, as an asset. And again, you know, I'm not, I don't have a horse in this race in the sense that like I'm a Bitcoin truther or anything like that. I, I just, I look at it and it's an asset that's very uncorrelated. Now, again, that's looking backwards in time going forward. When we talk about what Bitcoin's going to look like, assuming that it doesn't turn out to be just, you know, magic beans and goes to zero. Um, it's likely going to be, and, and this is my view, is that I think that Bitcoin is going to be increasingly adopted by institutions because they're all chomping at the bit to be able to like add this thing. And, and again, from a portfolio management perspective, when I look at this thing, it's extremely high volatility. I know that the general sort of consensus is that high volatility is bad. I, it's actually the opposite. You want super high vol volatile assets because that means that you'd only have to put a little bit of money in them for them to make a big difference in your portfolio, right? So Bitcoin checks that box in spades, right? It, it's, it's, it's standard deviation is like 150% a year. And, and so that's great because that means you only need to put 1% of your portfolio in it. And that's enough to give you the exposure that you, you'd be looking for in terms of like a diversifier and something that is like very convex. It's, it's like a lottery ticket, right? So you, you put this one, one, percent of your portfolio in and it could be this huge hedge against if central banks totally screw everything up um, or you know if every single major asset manager ends up putting an allocation into this it goes to the moon right so I, I, I do believe that the long-term adoption of it is, is going to happen is it specifically Bitcoin sure maybe or maybe more broadly it's crypto right um, I, Again, I, I'm agnostic to that. I, I, I think, you know, if you can buy that plus Ethereum plus a bunch of other things, great, do it. You know, the point is keep that to a sleeve in your portfolio that makes sense from a volatility contribution perspective. And that, again, comes back down to bet sizing. So you can put super risky assets in your portfolio as long as it's something that is is you know, balanced against a, a framework of other assets you're putting in there that are uh, helping to, to sort of smooth out uh, the volatility. I, I, again, I'm not a huge, I, we've sort of discussed this uh, prior. Um, I don't think volatility is the only measure of risk that one should pay attention to. Um, you know, the way that I kind of explain it is that volatility is like turbulence on an airplane, right? Um, it, it's scary. It's very salient. You feel it and it's not fun for the passengers or, or anyone that's on the plane, but it's not necessarily the key risk that's going to cause a plane to go down. 
right? And, and it's also part and parcel, like as soon as you get on an airplane, you accept the fact that there's going to be some turbulence on it. You know, anyone that's that's ridden around on, on airplanes knows that. So that's that's something that kind of going in, we, we kind of have to accept, right? To a certain degree, there's gonna be some turbulence. And if I was to build an airplane that was optimized to just minimize turbulence, probably what would happen is I would do I would actually end up making that plane less safe because I would actually end up decreasing its its operating envelope because it'd be more heavy and it would have this rigidity that that airplanes don't necessarily have because the bigger risk is actually things like the, did the pilot get enough sleep you know the night before did the the co-pilot have enough hours in the cockpit you know with with you know, professionals around them learning to communicate with one another. Did the guy that, um, you know, went through the checklist in terms of the, um, uh, you know, checking all the parts on the airplane, was it a Friday afternoon and was he trying to get out of the hangar as soon as possible? You know, great, great to bring back the, the air, airliner and flying theme from earlier. <laughs> so, so, so to me, to me, those are the really, they're not salient risks, but those are the things that are actually the ones that matter in terms of whether or not I'm going to blow up over the Atlantic Ocean or not. The salience or the very visceral experience of turbulence, I get it. I'm not saying that that's not a risk and that's not something that's scary to people, but it's not the most important risk, right? And, and I can give you another- I thought it, it, like you, you wouldn't want to run the risk of uh, mistaking taking off at all in the plane for volatility or turbulence. Right, in the sense that, yeah, like, yeah, like you're getting on a flight, you're taking off, and that experience of thrust and all of that is part of the whole thing, right? And and so, and, and you actually raise a good point. And, and so this is my kind of problem with standard deviation as a measure of, of risk is that it's symmetrical. So when your portfolio is like really taking off, you're actually getting penalized for that, right? But if we take an asymmetric measure of risk like Sortino, so now we're just looking at downside volatility. And I think that is, is a better expression of understanding risk because that's the risk that I care about. It's, it's suddenly hitting an air pocket and the, and the plane falls by like, you know, a thousand feet. That's scary. Right, and that's something I want to avoid as much as possible. And people could get injured in in a, in a situation like that. So, you know, the way that we think about a lot of these things, I think there's this sort of um, simplified heuristics that we're given, in terms of you know don't use leverage, um, you know don't put super risky assets in your portfolio. You should be avoiding volatility and high vol assets. I think some of those things are are rules of thumb that aren't necessarily true. And, and so we have to kind of evaluate them on a, on a more case-by-case -case basis and understand that like, you know, there's different ways we can put together portfolios and there's different ways we can harness some of these things. We can actually make volatility our friend because you can do something called volatility pumping. As I rebalance the portfolio, if I have something that's gone way up and something else that's gone way down, as I rebalance, I actually get to arbitrage the difference between these two things. Every time I rebalance is an opportunity for me to like basically buy low and sell high. And the higher the volatility, the, the greater the range is between those two different potential assets at a given point in time. And so I have, and ideally, if I have a whole basket of these things, and, and a bunch of them are, you know, not correlated with one another, I have more and more opportunities to do this. You mentioned the first episode of season one, and the crucible that I went through. 
But you just mentioned the term leverage there, and that reminded me of a crucible that Ben described going through also right. in the same episode. Ben, could you just remind us of what that crucible felt like for you? Because I think this sets up an interesting discussion, and that was that was also part of the appeal for having this interview for me, because in our discussions on Twitter, Jagdeep, you also mentioned the use of leverage, but there was significant consequences for Ben in the past using that. So I think that might be something interesting um, to explore. But also, there's, it's great just hearing you talk, Jagdeep. I'm writing down a lot of the terms you're using, and I think Ben and I might like to get some definitions for some of those as well. Ben, could you briefly describe um, maybe what it was like using leverage in the way you chose to? And I think it might be interesting to discuss or hear what Jagdeep has to say. um, Obviously, leverage amplifies the impact of a downward cycle on your investments. And at that time, I had taken out margin loans and it was just around the time of the global financial crisis where stocks started to plummet in October. It just sampled asked, how did it feel? <laughs> it's quite quite obvious. It didn't feel too good. Jagdeep, you have a belief that it's possible to responsibly use leverage. So I can imagine that that was a, a super painful experience, you know, being leveraged going into basically the worst time for equity markets since the Great Depression is not a fun experience. So I empathize with you a, a great deal. That, that must have been awful. But having, despite that, I would say it's a tool. It matters what kind of leverage and it matters what you're leveraging. So in your instance, you're talking about recourse leverage, right? And I'm not necessarily an advocate for that. You, you want to have what we call non-recourse leverage, meaning that the most you can lose is whatever you put in, nothing above that. And the beauty of, of leveraged ETFs is that they give you that, right? So they are, they're using futures as the underlying sort of vehicle, not always strictly futures, there's derivatives contracts there. So it's whether it's futures, whether it's swaps, uh, there might even be some options involved. Um, the nature of futures, the nature of swaps, the nature of, of options, it swaps, it depends on the structure of the contract, but with futures and options at the very least, you have embedded leverage, right? That That's it's built as part of how those structures work. And so that makes leverage very, very cheap in those, within those constructs. Um, and those vehicles, like so with options, depending on how you do it, like for example, the, the, the big innovation that all the guys on, or all the people on Wall Street bets have, have discovered is, is YOLO calls, right? And that means that you're buying deep out of the money calls on, on a given underlying. And it's, again, it's like a lotto ticket effect, right? It's, it's basically, you're putting in a very small um, uh, bet size in terms of like, it might be a thousand dollars they're putting into this. Um, but if, if it ends up going your way in terms of within the time frame that you set up that bet, or, you know, let's say over the next three months, I expect GameStop to go up, you know, uh, 50% or whatever it is, then that pays out in a, in a very exponential function of that underlying because it's highly convex, right? So what is an out of the money call? How is that non-recourse leverage? So in in the sense that if I buy an option, right? Uh, not writing an option, writing an option or selling an option is a totally different thing. And so now you are exposed to uh, recourse in the sense that you're on the hook, right? For whatever it is that you've, you've promised to do through the options contract. So 
to keep it simple, we're just talking about buying something. So you're buying a call, right? And a call basically says that I have the right to buy something in the future at X price. And you know, the, 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 the purchase of that call, it, it entails a, a premium and you're paying that premium and that's your max loss, right? So if that premium I paid $10, whatever it is, um, that's all I can lose, right? But that has tremendous embedded leverage in it because it's, again, like it's this very convex function of, of whatever is going on with the underlying. And the more and more that the price, the future price ends up being closer to whatever my strike is, what they call the delta and the gamma functions change because options are nonlinear contracts, right? So the options get into some weirdness. So they, they're because of this nonlinear function of them, and by the way, bond convexity works the same way. The longer your duration, the the, the more convexity you have in, in the bond. And so what happens is, is as prices are moving, they have bigger and bigger effects, right? As, as they get closer and closer to these uh, edges of this convexity, basically. So they can, they can be prof profoundly powerful tools, but you have to understand what you're doing, right? And, and so... Um, again, you know, that's an example of leverage. Now, to bring it, reel it back in. Hang on, we've solved your problem, Ben. So you need to go on, you need to go on Wall Street bets and <laughs> buy deep out of the money calls. And that, yeah, that's a way that's, to you, express. You weren't, you yeah. weren't a degenerate Wall Street bets trader. That's the problem. You're too <laughs> responsible and being a. <laughs> so, but, but, you know, but there is some, somewhere in between we can go. And, and so in between would be that you can go buy. Uh, a levered, you know, S&P 500 fund, right? Uh, and, and you can get that at two times leverage or three times leverage. And what they're using is, is a combination of futures, contracts, and swaps to basically give you leveraged, levered exposure to the underlying index. And the beauty of that, again, is all you can lose is the amount of money you put into the ETF. So if I buy $100 worth of that ETF, you know, it, it could go up a lot, it could go down a lot, but it can't go below zero, right? Now, if you really want to get crazy, you could buy that on margin. And now that's a different thing. Now you've created recourse uh, leverage, but non-recourse is is what you want to use if you're using leverage. And you so want- So the Wall Street bets traders are not total morons then? No, they... in fact, some of them are really, really bright uh, yeah. people that really understand options quite deeply. I'm not, an, I, and full disclosure, I'm not an options guy. I, I'm not deep into, like, you can go on FinTwit and, and follow all these people who are like, you know, super options, volatility traders, and this and that. Um, half the time, I have no idea what they're talking about. But the, the, the point is, is that, you know, th there are these vehicles in which uh, leverage is, is part of the deal. It's, it's just like, you know, if you go buy a house, leverage is part of the deal. You know, most people are not walking into a bank or you don't even need to walk into a bank. You're just walking up to a realtor and handing them a bag of money and saying, I have cash to pay for this entire house. Um, what happens is, is that you understand that you're going to put a portion down and the rest is going to be financed by the bank. Um, and, and the thing is, is that because the underlying in terms of real estate tends to be a very stable asset, we don't get too freaked out about that because you know, it's, it's, and that's why the bank doesn't get freaked out either. You know, they feel comfortable lending against that. Uh, and I know Australia's housing market is, is just as crazy as Canada's. Um, and, and, you know, people here don't bat an eye at putting down 5% on a million dollar home and leveraging themselves up 20 to one. Sorry, go ahead. It's an interesting point that you just said, um, 
you realise that the Australian housing market is just as crazy as the Canadians. Um, but what makes you say it's crazy other than possibly low yield returns and low growth? If I'm, I'm reading um, Sapiens at the moment and one of the key things that he says in that is humans are storytelling uh, animals. You know, we, we have common beliefs, common stories amongst us. And if the common story is that um, house prices are, you know, not, you leverage them 95%, as you say, and they should be expensive and they're more than just uh, an investment, then, it, and I don't want to try and catch you in a word where you've just um, said crazy, but I do think it's interesting uh, around humans being story animals and having common beliefs and wondering whether that plays into your investments as well and the, the idea of narrative in in purchasing investments and could you talk a little bit about that as well i, I agree with you that there is definitely a narrative around um something as emotional as as real estate as a, as a purchase right because we're not just talking about it as a as a financial asset it, it's a place you live right and and so i think that there is this qualia to that in terms of um, uh, it, it, it's not just simply trading a piece of paper, it, you know, it's, it's something that you walk into a home and you experience its, its um, ambiance. And, and so people, and, you know, believe me, I've, I've, <laughs> I've looked at buying real estate here in, uh, in Toronto for a couple of decades. I, I'm still a renter and and my preference would not would to be not a renter. I would rather own something. But you know, at the same time, um, it's very very difficult for both myself and my wife. She's very risk averse to justify taking every single penny that we have in terms of our life savings and pouring it all into one asset. And I think a, a great example of of the sort of risk in that is that you know looking at what's happened post coronavirus in terms of now people I, I live you know in the city proper in, in toronto uh by high park it's a it's a beautiful neighborhood here it's highly desirable from a real estate perspective but the houses are, are just you know astronomically expensive i live in a high-rise building that's right by um these beautiful homes and you know there's not a single house on the street that i could buy for less than i would say probably one and a half million canadian and you know, when you compare that to the average person's salary here in Canada, uh, most people are making, you know, around $80,000 a year. Uh, that, that's a lot of money relative to the income that they're making. And when you look at the real income growth versus the, the, the cost of housing, it's the two are very, very disconnected. And, and we, you're talking about the same predicament as the average Sydney cider. Like, right. I also got a job in Sydney, but I decided to go to Doha instead. And it's mainly because of the issue you're talking about. Like I, I would have been on a relatively decent salary, but here in Doha, there's no tax. And the, the cost of living is something like 30% less than in Sydney, which includes the cost of accommodation. I think it's hilarious actually property investing, especially in a place like Sydney or Toronto, where you pay more than a million dollars and you get objectively, an awful house you know right. um, yes yes yeah and and that was part of it too right like you know pulling the sugar like we, we looked at buying a house for it was you know and this was a deal that we were getting through our real estate agent where like 
was something that hadn't even hit the hit the market in terms of an actual listing. And I think they were asking seven hundred thousand. And then we'd still, you know, our projection was we'd probably put another 150, maybe 200,000, or sorry, it was like 750. And then it was like going to be another 150 or 200,000 that we put into it to make it really nice. Cause you're right. It was like a dump. Right. And, and like looking back on it, it still would have been a good investment because this market keeps going up. But, but at the same time, what I was about to say before is just that the, this coronavirus thing has also um, hopefully caused people to think a little bit more about how, how, deeply entrenched they need to be in a given geographic location because what we're seeing now is flight in terms of people that were in these very very cramped downtown condos they're leaving they're leaving in droves out to outer areas where there's more space because now they're working from home right and and these things like who could have predicted that right like you know a, a year and a half ago who would have been predicting that our condo market in the downtown core was going to take this huge dip. And, you know, instead you've got people migrating out to the suburbs. Um, it, that has not been the, the narrative here in Toronto. I, I know that's more in the States and stuff. Our cities are not as ghettoized as the U.S. is. And so, you know, we have great quality of life across, you know, a lot of different areas here. So people want to be in the downtown core. That's that's like where all the jobs are and, and, and all of that. So the, the idea that that would all kind of come apart so quickly is is not something anyone would predict. And, and so, you know, I think it goes back to this idea, and I kind of jotted this down for myself, is, is the idea that like, Diversification is the hedge against our own ignorance about the future and and just everything, right? And and the thing that I think also people lose sight of is this idea that they're looking for gurus, they're looking for people who have this sort of insight or or ability to predict the future. I got news for you. You know, there's there's a researcher out there that that did the work on this, Philip Tetlock, you know, and he he did a systematic um, study of people making predictions. And the, the biggest takeaway from what he, he learned is that there are no outliers. There is nobody out there that is consistently able to predict the future. I, that, doesn't, that shouldn't come as any kind of a revelation to any human being. We all know that, right? But the amazing thing to me is that when you don't know about something, the first thing we do is we go to an expert and we ask them you know, to predict the future. And it just like none of that makes sense. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And in fact, the the weird thing is, is that the more expert someone is, the more likely they are to actually be wrong in their predictions because they're they're sort of they have this kind of narrow view in a lot of ways. And and so I, I think that when we accept the fact that nobody knows the future, you know, then we can kind of let go of that and start to get to the real business of how do I construct something that can tolerate whatever may come and and i think okay, that's that, that, that's a good point to um I, I think get on to your uh list of 13 uncorrelated assets because i think for the average investor or the the average person trying to get a bit of extra money in their lives they view the property market as always going up <laughs> i think you know yes there was a financial crisis property prices did crash but overall, for the average mum and pop, uneducated investor, they think it is safe to plough the majority of their money into a house. 
And Ben, I don't want to speak for you or to focus unnecessarily on the, the particular crucible that you went through. But I think, you know, it's still useful for everyone to hear about it and to hear an honest discussion about. It's my suspicion, because I know that you have a number of property investments, that maybe you saw the behavioural and the emotional impacts of losing that money on, on margin or because of trading on margin. And as a result, you chose the path of financial independence are focusing on property investing simply because stocks are much more liquid. So when you suffer emotional impacts from volatility, it's easier to exit the market. Whereas when you've got a property, it takes a while to sell one usually. I just want to say I'm not against property. Like I, I think actually the whole reason why property works as an investment is exactly what we were talking about in terms of leverage. The easiest oh, asset okay. you can you can go get leverage on, right, for the average person is real estate. Like I said, the whole system is built that way. So it makes all the sense in the world that when you talk to most average people, how did they become super wealthy? It was through real estate. But don't Sorry, what, what I'm sneaking up on here is to yeah. try to get Ben, the chartered accountant, to go in the direction of deep out of the money calls. I want that. <laughs> set up already a eToro account. And I don't know if they have eToro in North America, but it's sort of like the European app that's similar to the one, the Robin Hood one in, in America. Do have that. And it's somewhat seductive. I, I've only bought, I was going to buy one share of GameStop just the other day and it was at $50. And then I saw that a few days later it went to something like 180 So thanks, I'm on that journey, Will, and, and thank you for um, steering us in, into that direction, my financials. I do, Will, Will, I did Will is the gambler. He's trying to get everybody into crypto, uh, yeah, into there's, YOLO there's another, bets. There's another crucible coming up, I can feel it. <laughs> Um, Sorry, didn't mean to. I want to come back to that original question, though, around not just those 13 uncorrelated asset types that you've identified, but also could you take us a step back and talk about how the approach that you went in developing up your portfolio, the mechanics of it? Because if someone else wants to do that, uh, I think they want to be a little bit more informed rather than just have a procedure, I guess, uh, or some sort of roadmap on how to look at and think about the portfolio. And it may not may not be that you've got that laid out in front of you that you can easily talk about, or maybe it is, but could it also direct us in terms of books that might be useful for people to read? Yeah, I'm not big, honestly, book guy to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't read a lot of books. I tend to read blogs and um, I'll read some academic papers, white papers, that type of thing. Um, I, I find I, I just don't have the patience to kind of wade through, you know, 200 page book where there's probably usually 50 pages of it that is the real meat. And, and so I, I try to, for me, you know, I, I'm time is at a premium. And so I, I try to focus on um, getting information that I need specific to the thing that I'm trying to do. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of blogs that I follow. Um, there's, plenty of people on FinTwit, like I, I probably follow, you know, 900 some odd handles on, on FinTwit, um, which is a terrific place to, to, to learn and, and do some deep dives on some very esoteric things uh, and also generate ideas. And, and so um, in terms of like sort of my process, I, I just, I've been around ETFs for a very long time. I originally, I, most people don't know this, but actually 
you know, here in Canada, we were the ones that were the first to ever list an ETF of any sort. Um, so they were called index participation units back then. Uh, so the, the original idea came from some people in Chicago. Uh, I'm not exactly sure their background, but it was some Americans. And, and it was, you know, uh, the idea was to, to basically go compete against the Vanguard index fund. But John Bogle is the father of indexing in the sense of actually taking the academic research and putting that into an investable product, right? And they did that back in 1976. So then eventually this idea came of of wanting to create um and, and to my understanding it was in a, partly in response to what happened in 1987. uh in 1987 you had a lot of um institutions that were doing what they call program trading through in um, uh, index futures trying to hedge their positions on the s p 500 and what they found was that you know that system kind of blew up a little bit in terms of, of creating all this volatility that, the, that they weren't necessarily prepared for. So ETFs were kind of this idea that if we could create this exchange traded thing that allows them to be able to express a view on the whole S&P 500, it might sort of be a, a release valve. So that idea was pitched to the American regulators. They didn't go for it. Uh, I think that was all the way back in like 1989, 1990. Uh, they came up to Toronto and, you know, to the credit of Canadian regulators, they're, you know, we're a smaller capital market, they're willing to take more risks. And so they said, sure, why not? You know, let's do it. So they listed these index participation units and basically um, it was tips and hips. And I think one was the top 35 stocks and the other one was the top 100 stocks in terms of market cap on the index. And those started trading around 1990, 1991, and they were managed directly by the TSX exchange itself. Uh, so there was no third-party index provider. There was no third-party ETF company. It was just the exchange itself doing it. And they were dirt cheap. They were doing it at, I think, at five bips is what the cost was for this. And I remember uh, I got into investing by the age of 15, 16. And I, you know, the thing that kind of captured my imagination, and so I kind of relate to you guys in terms of your enthusiasm around the, the compounding, is I, I remember seeing a mountain chart, is what they call it, of somebody that invested in the Franklin Templeton Growth Fund back in 1954, and then seeing what that grew to by 1995. And it was astronomical, right, in, in terms of the returns and, and what this amount goes from 10000 to like $1.5 million. And I was blown away by that. And I was like, how is that even possible? And then I started, you know, opening up an Excel sheet and, and started doing the compounding calculations. And it, it just started to get familiar with the power of compounding like as i change this number you know what does that what does this end number look like by the time i'm 65 and it's staggering right when you when you start to really get that in your head it is really just incredible learning about exponential growth and and then from there you know my father had had been investing and this is back in you know he started in the 80s with a broker full serve broker you know and somebody you call up on the phone and they charge you like a $300 commission to buy or sell a stock and um and their job was to get you to trade right and and so he had a guy that was pressuring him to trade all the time so eventually he went from there to and and his sort of path as an investor really maps onto exactly what most Canadians uh, through this era went through. You went from a stockbroker in the 80s to somebody that was selling you mutual funds in the 90s. And then you went from mutual funds to eventually, hopefully by now, ETFs. 
I, I kind of helped steer him into ETFs much earlier because um, I was looking at these things on the stock tables and, and I, you know, I remember getting the newspaper and getting stock tables published, right? And, and seeing on there that these tips and hips and I was like, what is this? And you look into it and it's like in one stock, I can own the 35 biggest or hundred biggest companies on the TSX. This is brilliant. Like, why wouldn't you do this, right? And, and so um, uh, it was a little bit later that we, we got into using ETFs as, as, as kind of a cornerstone in, in their portfolio. And, uh, and like I said, you know, I made mistakes. I got caught up in the tech bubble, looking at the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 and all this stuff. And so we went, you know, heavier towards tech uh, at that time, bought Nortel, you know, did all that nonsense and lost a lot of money. Now, the, the, the key thing I also learned was that along the way, Nortel, by the way, went to zero. So this was the biggest stock in, on the exchange, 40% of the index, and it eventually went to zero. Okay. And whereas any of the index funds we owned, they went down a lot. Don't get me wrong, but you know they still didn't go to zero. They're still here, and that was the big learning experience for me. Was that if you buy the index, it'll never go to zero. It doesn't matter. So what, the reason you're mentioning that is what you said at the beginning of the interview, where a big challenge or something, an important thing that investors must do is what Warren Buffett says: rule number one, don't lose money. Rule right. number two. Don't forget rule number one. Right. So, you know, and the other analogy I use about investing, it's, it's like going to war. Your first rule, if you're a soldier going off to war, is to come home alive, right? That's your job more than anything else. You don't worry about winning medals. Don't worry about being a hero. Your job is to get home. And and so, and you know. You can stand back up again from your wounds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So as, so as long as we don't blow up, then we're, then we're good. And so... You know, and, and even blowing up, like in the sense of, uh, I give the example of the NASDAQ, and I, and I totally relate to exactly what you're describing, Will, in terms of your experience with Bitcoin, where, you know, you, you had this horrible experience with it, and you didn't even want to think about it. You didn't want to look at the price of Bitcoin or what happened and all of that. That is a normal human response, right? And, and that was exactly me. I did not want to, like, allocate new funds. We kind of let cash build up. And in retrospect, that was the big mistake. You know, if you're going through hell, keep going. And, and, and that is the other lesson that I really learned is that if, if I kept kind of dollar cost averaging into the NASDAQ during that very, very painful period, um, you still would have been a-okay. Eventually, you know, you, you would go back to annualizing by now at like 16% a year over that whole period of time, even if you bought at the peak. Right. And, and so I think and, and these are, I would have a quarter of a million dollars in Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's the most right. painful thing. No, no. I think Bitcoin's a little bit different. I, I like, cause it still could, could have turned out to be magic beans, right? Like there's no, I, I think that's a higher risk bet. And, and so, uh, you know, you've got to get the bet sizing, right. But if you're talking about like, even for somebody today, if they're, if they're going deep into the fang stocks and all of this stuff, I think that the key lesson, I hope if anybody is out there in that position right now, they're listening to this, um, if it does crash and it goes down by 80, 90%, whatever it is, um, you know, hopefully what you do is you keep 
putting money into those things and eventually they will recover. Um, there's again, there's no guarantee on that. Like, you know, Japan is the big cautionary tale I always point to people about in terms of equity markets is that, you know, it peaked because of this huge property bubble uh, back in 1989, the bubble burst right at the end of 89. And it's basically now starting to get back to even, right? And, and so that's insane when you think about that. That's like, you know, 32 years of pain before you're, you're, you're back, to, back to even. But again, if you kept investing throughout that whole period of time, you still actually end up being okay. And, and if you diversified with some bonds and with some gold, it makes it even better. And, and, you know, it's the same thing when I look back at the, the time series on, um, you know, the Great Depression and all of that. It's remarkable. You, you actually could have bounced back as quickly as like three or four years with a, with a good, well-diversified portfolio across stocks, bonds, and gold and kept putting money in. You could even shorten that further. So, you know, all things are possible. You can, you can deal with volatility. You can deal with drawdowns, all of that stuff, as long as nothing goes to completely zero. Right. And then that was the, the pain point for me was that individual stocks are incredibly risky and there's no guarantee that the companies like Nortel was the bluest of the blue chip you could imagine. Right. Everybody owned that. You had to 40% of the index. Right. Finland, 70% of the index was Nokia. And that, that's so you saying I didn't realize it was that concentrated in Finland. Yeah. Well, it's smaller countries. Right. If you had a huge tech giant that's in a small country. It has a huge effect on 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 your index, so, uh, so and that's the economy in Finland been since that since Apple came along along and destroyed their country with, <laughs> with the, the touchscreen death by touchscreen. So, so the thing that saved Canada and the thing that probably saved Finland, I'm extrapolating here, is that the the commodity bubble started to grow in the ashes of the tech bubble, right? And and so there's always something out there that's gonna kind of save you, hopefully, in terms of like, there's some new thing that people are I don't investing. know about poor Finland though. Like what, did they have oil or something or? Yeah, no, they have a lot of natural resources. In, cans. in fact, in fact, in fact, Nokia's history is as, as a rubber company and oil and gas company and timber company. Like they, they became a tech company like way more recently, that was like a '90s kind of thing, and that's why they got so excited about it. But um, no, they're still very much, to my understanding, at least a, a resource-based economy. Now, I'm not a Finland expert, so if one of your listeners out there is offended, I apologize. I don't know if you have many of a following in Finland, but um, so we'll get the, on the Finnish, point, fin twit. That's the other fin twit. Right. So, so the point is, is that you know, in terms of just don't blow up and you're much more likely to blow up on an individual stock. That's why you don't do margin on individual stocks. Right. And, and so um, I, I totally understand the, the, the pain that you went through Ben. Um, but I, I think that's part of the reason why people are so averse to using leverage when they're investing and, and rightfully so it, you have to respect it. You have to understand how to use it and, and what's the right type of leverage and what are you leveraging? So the other way that I sort of explain this to people is that you have to build a very, very stable table to begin with, and then you can make it its legs longer. Right. And that's what leverage is doing. You're lengthening the legs, but the base has to be super, super stable before you get to anything like that. And just like with a building, if you want to add another story to a building, the, the foundation and everything below it, 
has to be built in such a way that it can accommodate that. And, uh, and so, you know, I think that's the mistake people make. It's, it's that, and that margin, buying stocks on margin was very much a thing that people did in the 1980s. And a lot of people blew up. And that's why leverage kind of went away come the 1990s. I know here, at least in Canada, it was a much more cowboy culture back in the 80s. And then banks kind of came in and became the dominant force in wealth management. And they, like our banks, are very conservative institutions. And they brought a lot more discipline to the whole thing. And like, you know, it used to be that people would graduate out of high school, go be a stockbroker, right? And, and that's what they were called. Now they're wealth managers. Now they're, you know, financial advisors, all that kind of thing. And, and so, but, but these days, if you're looking at people that are now going into that industry, they have CFAs, you know, they have um, a high level of education and they're doing model portfolios that are given to them by the banks and all of that. So, so there's a lot more control around this and the banks don't allow them to leverage things. Um, so I'm, I'm of the opinion that that's too, it's gone too far that way, that you can actually use leverage in a responsible way and, and not blow up. And especially now that we have these tools. So if you wanna go into some of the assets, um, I, I'm not gonna give specific tickers or anything like that, but in general, you know, some of the things that people should be looking at as a, as a diversifier is, I'll give you one, currency, right? Um, and you guys sort of understand this because you're international investors. An Aussie who's investing in the US, you automatically understand that there's a currency bet that's embedded in terms of whether or not you're going to hedge the Aussie dollar uh, to, to the US dollar, right? And, and I think most Americans don't really think about currency at all because they tend to invest within their own borders. And rightfully so. I mean, it's the largest capital market in the world. I don't blame them. But there's an opportunity for them to diversify their portfolios through currency. I expressly um, embrace that currency bet between the Canadian dollar and the US dollar. Uh, I actually looked it up just to see how the Aussie dollar and the US dollar pair um, works compared to the U, uh, U.S. dollar, Canadian dollar, and your currency is a little bit more volatile in terms of the currency pair, and that's actually great. That means that you can you can use that to your advantage in terms of there's this crisis alpha that happens. Um, so when you know basically uh, like 2008 is a great great example. Coronavirus in, in 2020 is another great example. Go take a look at the currency pair in terms of the Aussie dollar and the US dollar, and you'll see the US dollar does very well during that period of time. That means as an Australian investing in the US, if you're unhedged, you're, you're, you're getting that currency as, as kind of a backstop or a buffer to what's going on with the equity market. And the reason why is because when there's times of crisis, and it's not always guaranteed, it's not always going to be the case, the US dollar and specifically the US treasury market is the place of safety, right? Global flows in terms of money go into 10-year treasuries. That's that's the sort of safety valve for the world. And in order to buy US treasuries, you have to you have US dollars, right? And so that's what tends to happen, especially for, you know, I'm more versed in the Canadian US dollar relationship. And definitely there's a very, very strong correlation in terms of during times of crisis, our dollar goes down, the US dollar goes up. So as a Canadian investor, I, you know, during 2008, I think the, the currency pair moved something like 20 or 30%. So that helped offset a lot of equity losses if you were invested in the US. Now, it, do, it doesn't always work in your favor, like there's going to be times the currency is going to go the other way. But when you need it, in terms of this, this, you know, time of crisis, 
um, that can be a wonderful way to hedge risk. So actually, it's it's not necessarily the currency. It's the fact that the currency is the vehicle to buy U.S. Treasuries. It, it, is that true? Yes, in a, in a sense. Okay. The, in, so in the, on the way to get the treasuries, people are buying U.S. dollars, so the dollars right. get bid up. Right, exactly. So the U.S. dollar will exhibit strength versus, especially you know, for resource-based economies like the, the Australian economy and the Canadian economy, um, you know, our currencies are more linked to what's happening in. in Australia, it's more mining. So you guys are more linked to what's happening with base metals and precious metals. We're more linked to oil and gas. And if you look at those commodities in terms of oil and gas, what happens when um, things are risk off? Well, you know, usually oil and gas tends to struggle, right? And, and so our currency also by extension of that suffers relative to the US dollar. Um, but in general, you know, and, and then for Americans, you know, if you're looking for a currency pair where you're trying to hedge your risk, um, then you would look at the, the uh, Swiss franc versus the U.S. dollar. The Swiss franc is sort of the, the next tier of safety after the U.S. dollar because it's or above the U.S. dollar because the Swiss are just this release valve for everybody because they're, you know, they're neutral politically they're you know they have this secretive banking system and all of that so well they, they, they have everyone's money so when, they're, <laughs> when everything's going bad they all raid their swiss bank account exactly exactly so so the swiss franc is is a is a nice like it's that same kind of currency pair for the u.s investor um and and yeah i think bitcoin could potentially be that other thing that if people want to flee U.S. dollars, that would be another potential place they would go. Uh, gold has also historically been, you know, the place you can flee to if, if you're not confident in your currency. My background, my family comes from India. Uh, I was born and raised here in Canada. But if you go to India, you know, there's, there's only two assets people there believe in. It's land and it's gold. And that's it. They, they, they're not interested in holding paper in any way, shape or form. Now that's changing. But historically that's the narrative right is that you want to store wealth you store it in those things because their currency has been awful for many many decades and and you know they have a lot of inflationary growth there so you know currency definitely is is a major asset class i think most investors aren't necessarily integrating as as an express bet within their portfolio um volatility so volatility has emerged as an asset class, one that you can use ETFs to express a view on, whether it's long or short. Um, and you know we can go into a little more on that if you want, but volatility I think is a, is a terrific asset class. In fact, um, Matt from Breaking the Market had DM'd me today asking about my sort of non-correlated assets. And that's what I suggested to him is that you should take a look at integrating volatility. And you know his response was, well, it has a lot of drag to it, meaning that it, it bleeds money. And he's right. But in, in my opinion, it's still worth it because it works as a tail hedge. And, and there's a lot of debate around this. But in my opinion, having something like that as a, as a highly inversely correlated asset can be tremendously beneficial. Like I said, you know, it's about the rebalancing. So don't just look at and, and this is the other thing that I kind of mentioned to you guys was that people tend to look at the ingredient list, right? We, we tend to look at line items on a, on a, in a portfolio or, or we're picking something up in the grocery store and we're, we're looking at the, at the ingredients on the can, but what we should really be focused on as investors is the meal, right? It's, it's the overall dish that we're trying to create. 
And so, you know, if I hand you a raw piece of garlic and I say, chew on that, it's horrible, right? It's going to burn. But if I take that same piece of garlic and I, and I put it in some butter, it's delicious, right? And it's a very simple little thing, but it, it makes a world of difference in terms of your experience of that. So, you know, something like volatility, it, it looks like this horrible asset that why would I want to be long or short? Like short looks better because it, it pays out and it pays out until it, it kills you. That's kind of how it works. And I actually, the ETF provider that I worked at, we had an ETF, the only ETF in Canada that was allowed investors to go short on volatility by buying the ETF. So you went long on the ETF and you went short on volatility. And this was a huge trade for a number of years until February of 2018. Then it went to zero. Like it blew up, completely blew up as a trade. And literally that ETF went out of business as, as well as a number of other ETFs that were structured the same way. I remember that. What was the name of that ETF? Uh, I honestly don't even, and I'm all, all sort of steer clear of giving specific names and tick, but um, you know, it wasn't just us. It was a number of ETF providers in the US were in the same boat. And, and so you know, and it was amazing to me. It was like there were people in my office that had this product because it's its annualized return was like hundreds, if not thousands of percent over the last couple of years. They had this in their children's, you know, college funds and stuff. And it was just like, <laughs> it was just incredible to me. Like these people don't even understand what this underlying thing is that like, can you explain to me what the VIX is? No, not really. So why on earth are you investing in that? You know, it, it just makes no sense. But, you know, volatility as an asset class is still useful. Uh, you should understand it, understand how it works and what the what the risks are and all of that. But, you know, it's still a useful asset to put in a portfolio. Um, so so what we've got so, so far, because um, uh, uh, I, I am interested in listing off the 13 items that you have to reduce volatility, what I've gotten so far from you is volatility, currencies, you mentioned gold, we've covered land. Are these the, the things you have in mind? Well, yeah, we can go further. Uh, so, you know, long, short equity. Okay. So there's ways to structure um, bets in terms of um, being, you know, what they call a paired trade, a long, short trade of something. And, and you can do this, you know, in terms of... Uh, there's a myriad of different ways you can structure this, but you can create all sorts of different long, short positions that basically have no correlation to other, other things out there. Um, and you can buy um, ETFs that do this on your behalf as well. They, they exist. And, and what they'll actually do is hedge out the sort of general market risk in terms of like there, there won't be any correlation to the market itself and just a pure long, short bet on whatever. And in some cases that might be a factor-based bet in others. It might be um, some type of um, uh, a situational thing, an opportunity thing. So a good example of that would be like merger arbitrage. Okay. So where there's a company taking over another company. So you're going to go long the stock that's being bought and short the, the acquiring company, the one that's actually doing the buying. Okay. Because there's, there's typically a gap in terms of there's a risk arbitrage means that there's a, a point in time that this deal is supposed to close, but there's not a guarantee, right? Like the deals can fall apart. So there's a risk premium associated with 
you know, until that deal closes, the stock price, the the one that's going to be bought, you know that it's going to be bought. Let's say the the deal says that the you know acquiring company is going to buy the 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 acquired company at ten dollars a share. What'll happen is is that the market will bid up the the acquired company up to say nine dollars and fifty cents, right? And and there'll always be this gap of fifty cents until the deal closes. Now that arbitrage opportunity basically shuts down because the deal is done, right? But until that happens, there's this sort of opportunity to, and there's funds out there that this has been done in the hedge fund world for a long time, but today you can go buy a merger arbitrage ETF where they do this on your behalf, right? And it's a liquid, what they call liquid alternative fund. Um, and so, you know, those types of things exist. I'll give you a long short thing that happened with, with my own portfolio, like, uh, you know, February 1st, I was concerned about sort of, not deeply concerned, but okay, you know, this coronavirus thing is out there and, you know, I'm thinking about, okay, how does this potentially impact things? And really my thought process was around um, cruise stocks. I, I thought the cruise line industry was really going to get demolished if, if people are concerned about a virus and not traveling, right? And, and going back to February 1st, obviously we didn't know, you know, most people did not know the full extent of what was going to happen. So I was just thinking about travel and, and specifically these, these um, uh, cruise line stocks. And so I, I was like, I want to short these, but at the same time, I don't want to be naked short. I, I want to pair this with some kind of a, a long position as well. And then I was like, well, if there's this virus, then sort of the most direct bet on it would be there's got to be somebody that's probably working on a vaccine. And so, you know, February 1st, it was a Saturday. I remember this. I spent about an hour literally just Googling what are some companies that would be working on a vaccine for, for coronavirus and came up with nine names and didn't do any deep dive on these things. It was just found a few different lists, kind of compiled them and was like, okay, amongst these, who are the smaller companies that this would make a bigger difference to? You don't want to bet on like a huge corporation that's this multinational that, you know, the, the, the vaccine is gonna have a very limited impact in terms of their profits and earnings. Um, you want something that's a small biotech that if this thing ends up being something that they solve or, or if this becomes a big issue and they're able to provide a vaccine, it's gonna you know, cause a big bump. So I, I focused on those. I had a couple of larger ones, but that was just me being a bit chicken. And so I had you know nine longs on the vaccine side and nine shorts on the on the short side and the the way that i broadened out the shorts was that you know i had the the three cruise stocks you know it was um carnival and uh and royal caribbean and uh whatever the other one is uh norwegian and then you know i looked for an etf on for airlines and there was one called jets and it basically is like owns all the major global airlines great so shorted that and um the there was another ETF for gaming in terms of casinos, right? So shorted that, and um, and then there was the hotels. So I just went through the list of major hotels chains, shorted those. That was my nine. So I had nine long, nine short, eleven uh, percent in each, right? So equal weighted because I had no idea which one of these is going to do well, which one's not, and you know I didn't I didn't put any money in this to be to be clear, but it was something that I tracked. And so that portfolio uh, ended up, hold on, I have it. So as of last month, end of last month, you didn't rebalance it, just keep it held throughout. I didn't close any shorts or anything like that. 
um, it's up over 500% during that period of time. And it has a negative correlation to the US market during that time, right? So um, that's the power of doing that kind of a thing. Like that was an event driven kind of long short. Um, it was just something that I, you know, kind of built very quickly and it wasn't, I didn't have to do a ton of research on this. It was just thinking through, you know, if there's this virus and people stop traveling, what, what's the consequence of that? And, and, you know, I, I think that those types of ideas, um, can, can come around. And when people think in these long, short bets, the beauty of it is that like, you know, if the market tanks, there's going to be things that are going to benefit from that. And if the market goes up, then you have something else that benefits from that. So long, short can be really a powerful tool in terms of how you position yourself within your portfolio. And you don't, it's not just equities. You can also do that on the commodity side. Commodities are this very diverse market of, of many different types of commodities and different commodity complexes. And there's spread trades you can do, there's long short pairings you can do, um, and then just straight up certain ones that you're long, certain ones that you're short that aren't related to each other. Um, but that's another way that you can create a number of different non-correlated return streams. Um, so a, a famous one that a lot of people do is, is Brent crude and, and WTI crude, right? Go long Brent, go short WTI. Why? Because Brent is the global benchmark for, for oil. And that price tends to be much more stable and it tends to carry a price premium over WTI. WTI is much more localized price here in North America. And so all you're capturing is just the spread between these two things, right? So if oil goes down, oil goes up, I don't care. As long as Brent goes down less than WTI does, as long as Brent goes up more than WTI does, I make money, right? And that's the beauty of these types of, of trades. It's, it's non-directional. It, it's about the sort of spread between these two things. And that's what I care about in that context. So, you know, there's a myriad number of, of those types of things you can do within commodity markets. And then, you know, uh, hold on one sec. Crypto is another obviously asset class. Um, trend following. So that's not necessarily an asset class, but that's a, an approach in terms of um, gaining or fading exposure to different asset classes that can give you its own differentiated return stream. So you could literally have a sleeve of your portfolio that's doing, particularly if you do short term or a short trend following in the sense that you're, you're using very short term signals to do your trend following. Again, this is going to look more like that sort of volatility thing where it bleeds money over, you know, these sort of like periods of time where things are trending upwards, but in times of crisis, you know, they can pay out very nicely, but you can, you can tune that trend following model. However you want, you can have medium term trend following long-term trend following. You can have a combination thereof, but that's a way to create a diverse, uh, an independent return stream that isn't, you know, it's not connected to any one thing. You can do that across many, many different assets. So you're using, I like this term you've introduced, independent return stream. I think that's a, um, perhaps a more useful uh, way for an amateur to think about what you're, you're setting up. Right. And, and so it's not just about asset classes. Asset classes are wonderful things to give us diversification. And you should, you know, be invested in very, very broad asset classes. But then it's also about the mechanics of how you put these things together. So, you know, again, bringing it back to cooking, you have ingredients, but you also have technique in terms of how you cook things, right? If I take a piece of meat and I braise it, that's a very different thing than grilling it versus, you know, doing this and doing that. And it's all beef, right? It, it doesn't 
like so i think that's the other thing that escapes people is that there's there's and and by the way there's also a lot of these things you can do through exchange traded funds where you're not having to do your own long short you know equity stuff you can have a fund that provides you that return stream you can have a market neutral you know uh hedge fund like strategy that's in an etf wrapper and so hedge funds are great in terms of innovating these ideas. A lot of smart people work at hedge funds. You know, I, I had the opportunity to, to, to work alongside them and, and, and get to learn this stuff. Um, but the issue is, is that in the, in the past, it was a two and 20 model in terms of what they're charging. 2% management fee, 20% of your, of your upside in terms of your, your profits, right? And, and the 2% I'm not too worried about that. I can live with that. The 20% performance fee is the thing that really kills you because it's designed to benefit the, the fund rather than the investor. So the beauty is that now we have these liquid alternatives where these same strategies, now you could argue that they're a bit watered down, fine, but they're now available in a very liquid format that's, that's um, much cheaper, where they're not charging a performance fee. Um, the fees are still going to be a lot higher than what you get with a traditional ETF, but I would argue that like, I don't care about the fees as much as if I put this in my portfolio, do I get better returns or do I get more stable returns? Because uh, what we're trying to do here is really get the best risk adjusted returns we can. We want to find the most efficient portfolio we possibly can. And then if you want to get to a certain return level, that's when you add leverage. And this is in fact, Finance 101. This has been known since the 1950s with Markowitz and the efficient um, uh, frontier of, of um, you know, modern portfolio theory. Uh, you know, you, you have two assets, stocks and bonds. You find the sort of maximum point of efficiency in terms of the max sharp ratio. And that is the point that you then point of tangency to the, to the capital market line. And that's the most efficient portfolio. Now, if I wanna hit a certain return target, I add leverage to get there. That's more efficient than trying to load up on equities, right? If, if that's a less diversified portfolio, less efficient portfolio. So it, it's kind of like with a car, right? I, I, I can get from point A to point B, but I have to have a measure of efficiency between two cars to judge if, if one has done a better job of getting from point A to point B, right? And, and so let's take it as fuel efficiency. If, if it took me 100 liters of gas to go 100 kilometers, that's awful. If, if it took me one liter of gas to go 100 kilometers, that's fantastic, right? And, and I think that very often, you know, the average investor, what they're worried about is just the, the number. I, I drove 100 kilometers. That doesn't matter. You know, I, anybody can drive 100 kilometers. Anybody can get you a 10% return. It's how much risk you took to get there. And, and so that's what matters. That's how you measure efficiency when it comes to portfolios. It's actually really great. As you've been going through, I've written down all these terms you've used, Jagdeep. <laughs> realizing how much I have to learn. <laughs> um, I don't want to count them all here, but I reckon it's over 20. What you're saying here is quite a sophisticated, while the, the tools are accessible to a lot of people, it's somewhat sophisticated in terms of building this portfolio, even though you've got the tools, you do need to do the background education. Um, what's your view on that? for a basic investor, someone who's got the, a feel of index funds and the basics of ETFs and, and bonds, how applicable 
or easily would it be able would it be for them to replicate something similar to what you're probably not that easy i, I agree um you know i'm kind of giving you it, it's like if you're taking a piece of cooking intro class right you know you start with learning how to just chop an onion right or, or cooking an egg and then you know you're thrown into some advanced class where they're doing you know really fancy stuff like sous vide and this and that and so i, I that's sort of the, the the world that i kind of come from in the sense of understanding these things and then understanding that you can express these things through etfs um i i think that going forward we're going to see more and more of this stuff start to come to the fore because these products are still pretty new right like basically a lot of these alternative strategies and they're still kind of coming to the market in a lot of ways. Um, but you didn't start to see really any of these things until around after 2011, 2012. It, it took, you know, the global financial crisis and there were some bad return years after that, that, you know, now the industry started to focus on, okay, well, we've got to find stuff that maybe isn't just stocks and bonds, we can do something else with it. And, and looking to the hedge fund industry to kind of like bring those ideas over. Um, so, you know, it. I get it. Like it, it's it's sophisticated, but the ultimately, if you understand these things and you can kind of identify them as as products in the market, uh, I, I I'm like I said, I'm kind of an ETF geek. I I I know this stuff a lot. I I, I am very familiar with the whole product range out there, and not just the stuff that everyone knows, but the more sort of esoteric stuff. And I think that um, you know if you do your due diligence on this stuff as an individual investor, um, you know, there's an opportunity to, to, to kind of recognize, oh, okay, yeah, I see how this thing can fit with this thing. And because the way I kind of approach it is the, the, the equities are like the engine, right? That's going to be the main sort of driver of growth. And then what you've got to have is a bunch of other things that are the safety features in the car in terms of the airbags, the seat belts, the brakes, uh, and, and, and really high performance tires, all this stuff. All of that translates that power of the engine into usable um, forward motion that you can control right? And, and stop if you need to, right? Like high performance cars don't just have great engines. They have amazing braking systems on them way beyond what a regular car does because it's about the agility, right? And, and so ideally, and, and I'm not getting crazy fancy with like how I put these things together in the sense that I, I, I do a very simple buy and hold rebalance on a quarterly basis, but using a very, very broadly diversified set of tools, that's what I do. And, and so, you know, and, and to give you an idea, the types of returns, like my portfolio did 73% last year. And the, this is the thing that I'm, I think is really impressive is that from February 19th to March 23rd, when the S and P was down 34%, this portfolio was down one and a half percent. That's convexity, right? It's, it's getting the upside reward of, of, of taking risk, but cutting off that far left-hand tail when everything goes to shit. And, and so, you know, you have to, you have to know what you're doing to achieve that. Right. But if you do. So that, that says your 13 uncorrelated assets are in fact uncorrelated. Correct. And, and I'm not saying that that's forever and ever. Amen. Right. You have to like correlations change, all of this stuff shifts. Um, like it's not a fixed thing. It evolves over time. Right. Um, but, but the thing, the point is, is that, you know, there are ways to do this and, and like, 
you know, the Sortino score on this thing is like four. And I know that probably means nothing to you, but that's like fantastic. That means for every unit of risk we're taking, we're getting four units of return, right? And, and that again is like I had mentioned in my notes to you guys that we as human beings, we're looking for uh, our utility function in terms of what we're looking for from our portfolios is likely convex in the sense that I want all the upside and I don't want any of the downside. That's how we as humans operate, right? It's not necessarily realistic, but that's what we want. Um, so if that's what our, our goal is, then we should aim to build a portfolio that sort of aligns with that in terms of our natural tendency for what we're looking for. I want all the returns, but I want to truncate, you know, the big risks. And, and so, you know, that's convexity. And so if I'm doing a good job in terms of portfolio manager constructing a portfolio, then I should build something that is, you know, is, is aligned with that as a convex function. It leads me to the question, are there any ETFs doing, I know you've already talked about the long short ETFs and so forth, but are there any ETFs out there um, that are doing something similar um, to what you've done? Uh, again, I, I don't really want to give out specific tickers, but um, yes, like, in fact, there, there's, there's stuff out there these days, it was launched, you know, pretty recently, um, and this is in the U.S. market, where they're using these options to give you convexity in, on the S&P 500. And if you if you kind of do some research in terms of S&P 500 ETF convexity, I'm sure you'll find it. Um, I, I, I don't mean to be cagey. It's just that I'm, oh, I'm kind of... I'm, I'm in this position right now where I'm, you know, I'm not currently licensed uh, because I'm sort of out of the industry right now, but I'm going to be kind of going back into it. And I don't want it to be construed as me giving investment advice or specific, you know, sort of things that people should be doing. That's totally fine. I, I thought your guidance there was really useful. And if you go onto Google and, and type in S&P 500 convexity, um, you will find some information. I think that's, that's very instructional to say. Um, so we're, we're up to nine now that I've written down. Uh, okay. And so, I mean, the other the other thing I would mention, um, so yeah, is so, some of them aren't going to be sort of broad, um, like, so within long short equities, within long short commodities, within volatility, there's like things within that that are like specific ETFs or products or strategies or whatever that um, would kind of bring that to a broader number. Um, the other thing I'll mention is that there's also something like time scale diversification. Okay. So I know you guys did like a value investing uh, course. So value would be what we call a convergence trade that happens over long periods of time. Okay. So if you're talking about value, Traditionally speaking, at least, it depends on the value that you're talking about, but usually value takes time to play out, right? And I think, Will, you'd even mentioned this in terms of like invest in a, in a team, let them do their thing for five years, and then they'll, they'll sort of give you the results that you're hoping. Um, and so that's fine. Um, you know, value is probably, I would say, closer to maybe a decade in terms of like really playing out the way that you you hope if you're looking at intrinsic value and the company sort of realizing that intrinsic value. Um, but then, you know, if that's your long time scale convergence trade, 
then you can also do stuff that's shorter term, right? And like I said, you could do trend following, but you can also do something like momentum. Momentum in, you know, you can do that cross-sectionally, you can do that on an absolute basis. But, but the point is, is that, you know, you can have these shorter timescales that your ideas are playing out. And, and so, you know, th that can be another form of diversification in terms of um, playing across these different timescales of how things are going to play out according to, you know, framework is. Um, one question I want to follow up on is you talked a little bit about the history of investing in the sense of in your father's days, was stock trading and then that moved into into the 90s um, mutual funds and then ETFs currently you may have already touched on this but where do you see the future of products and investing possibly going uh, that's an interesting question I, I think that um uh, it'll probably have something to do with blockchain and and in terms of that being a new avenue for distribution of financial products um and and i know that you know, I'm not a crypto kitty type of person. Like I, I'm not big on the whole idea that crypto is going to um, upend the world and, and free all of us from the bondage of banking and all of this stuff. I, but I do think that it's going to be a disruptive technology. And I, I do believe that um, part of the reason why you're seeing Bitcoin where it is today and where it'll probably go in the future is not because it's outside of the financial system. It's because it's going to be brought into the financial system okay and so going forward i think bitcoin is going to eventually become a very like sort of boring asset class in a lot of ways like it'll it'll exhibit a very similar volatility profile to other sort of like financial assets and it'll look a lot like other things but the blockchain in terms of like this channel of distribution um is really really interesting it's smart contracts and all of the other stuff that's going on there uh in fact you're already seeing this you know there's there's funds out there that have already done this where they have the kyc requirements know your client and it, for each jurisdiction right so it doesn't matter where i live in the world if i you know basically open up this application it and it's all lives on the blockchain i open this up on my computer it knows exactly where i am and will show me all the proper documentation for my jurisdiction for me to be able to subscribe and, and become an investor in a given fund. Okay. And so I, I think that that is really interesting because the, the, the disruptive technology around ETFs versus mutual funds is, is this aspect of decentralization in the sense that it, it's centralized on an exchange, but exchanges are much more open platforms than mutual funds are because mutual funds, they actually have to know something about their end client, right? Um, they have to send you your tax forms and, and whatever. So that happens on a, on a domestic level, right? So if, if I'm a Canadian, I can't invest in an Australian mutual fund. If I'm a Canadian, I can't go invest in a US mutual fund and vice versa, right? Whereas with an ETF, as long as my broker provides me access to that exchange, right? If it's the ASX, it's the TSX, or it's the New York Stock Exchange, doesn't matter. I can buy an ETF that exists on that exchange. And, and I think the next level to that would be no exchanges whatsoever. Instead, I just open up an application you know, on my phone or on my computer and it's all living on the blockchain and anywhere, you know, anyone, if they have the money, if they have it on the, you know, whether it's a digital currency or whatever, will be able to purchase that fund and, and be able to put it in their portfolio. Um, I think that's really amazing. And, and I think that that's likely what we're going to see in the future. Um, so, so to me, that's, that's kind of exciting and, and cool, you know, like the, the level of um, 
uh, capacity you can bring into a fund when it's available to everybody everywhere is pretty amazing. And, and I think you'll have a best of breed in terms of ideas, right? Like global competition, that's what it does. It, it, it makes, it calls the weak and it gives you the best, the very, very best. So, you know- What you've some... summarized there is, is the information age actually, right, um, which right. was something we touched on in one of our, our episodes. Because, yeah, and I, um, information technology and, and um, our yeah, global communication infrastructure, anyone from anywhere in the world can work on any problem, um, mm -hmm. which means that people from uh, regions where cost of living is lower, cost of education is lower, et cetera, have an advantage. Um, but you've just described another implication of um, the information. For sure. And, and I, I think that's really exciting. And, and you know, as, as, as pessimistic as I sometimes am, I like, you know, we're talking about risk. I, I think a lot of people in the world of finance, you know, you ask them what's what's a risk right now. They're worried about inflation. They're worried about QE. They're worried about this and that and Federal Reserve and central banks and stuff. Fine, but you know, the, the real risk is and or coronavirus. But the real risk is 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 global climate change, as far as I'm concerned, and and mass extinction and the fact that we're killing this planet. Um, that that is by far to me the biggest tail risk that any human being on this planet faces. And it doesn't matter how diversified I am across all these different wonderful asset classes and strategies and stuff, like none of that is gonna do anything if we can't breathe the air, we can't drink the water, um, and we don't have any animals. You're talking you know. to two Australians here who've been right. marinating their entire lives in the news output of News Limited. Climate change doesn't exist according to-, <laughs> to Rupert Murdoch? Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so so here's here's an alternative asset class for you is is um, you know I, I also worked more recently at a at a firm that does capital advisory and and our niche was really um, I, I'm not with that firm any longer but they their focus was really on sustainability uh, and impact investing and so you know one of the companies that um, that we were kind of working with was um, called WorldTree look them up. And, and what they have developed is, is this whole program around um, planting the fastest growing hardwood tree in the world. Um, their sort of target market is really coffee plantations because coffee plantations need to plant shade trees. Okay. So the farmer ends up taking care of the tree. This tree grows to full maturity within 20 years. And it creates this beautiful hardwood that um, that can be used for furniture, uh, instruments, all sorts of stuff. And so the farmer gets, I think it's 50% of the proceeds. Like, so when the tree gets harvested and gets turned into, into lumber, farmer gets paid out 50%, 25% goes to the company and 25% goes to the investor. But the beauty of it is these things sequester carbon like crazy, right? And, and so, you know, this type of thing, I love as, as not only as a non-correlated asset, but also as something that you can do within your investing portfolio to potentially hedge against the biggest risk that we all face, which is that we're all gonna kill ourselves as a species on this planet. And, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, this idea of, of diversification and hedging, I, you know, you can, you can broaden that out a lot further than just strictly, you know, sort of financial assets and, and, you still financialize some of these things, you know, like there's a bunch of companies that, that we were working with that were doing really cool things. And, and that's just one idea, but, but, you know, trees 
and investing in the idea of planting trees around the world, I think is fantastic. And, and, and that's a wonderful doing. idea. Uh, yeah, I love it too. And so uh, I'll send you the link to the, to the, to the hold on one sec, website up, but um, you know, like, I think we really need to to be thinking along those lines. Uh, I give credit to to big ETF managers like BlackRock. Um, they're they're taking this very seriously, uh, and if you read their their stuff, and ESG has become this very faddish kind of like thing within the ETF world because there's a lot of money flowing into it now. But but that's fine. You know, I I don't have a problem. I don't care if you're cynical about any of this. It doesn't matter to me as long as the behavior ends up changing, right? And so if it ends up resulting in people investing their money in such a way or, or gives them an avenue to invest their money in such a way as to like reduce the carbon footprint of their portfolio or, or make it more socially just or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, great, you know, and-, and, and I, like, I love the idea of having hedge funds um, engaging in making the world more socially just that is a fantastic idea. Having the smartest uh, money managers in the world working on making the world more equitable, yeah, this would be a great. And I think anyone that's a thoughtful human being, you know, they, they understand that we can't just, you know, destroy the planet and we'll be okay, you know? That's also and, true. Yeah, it's actually favorable to human survival to have the smartest people in the world who work for hedge funds working to, to ensure our survival. You mentioned it. Yeah, thank, thanks for the link about worldtree.info. I'll put it in the show notes. But I just wanted to touch on some behavioral issues. So you mentioned a behavioral issue there, the social justice trade being a fad. But also I wanted to hear from you a bit of commentary on the behavioral reasons why people do not diversify across these 13 asset classes. And in preparing for this interview, you mentioned some of the behavioral reasons why people don't participate sure. in the massive Cabrian explosion of ETFs that, that has happened. Um, <laughs> so could you give us a bit of commentary on your thoughts on behavioral factors? Uh, well, I, I think Ben gave me one already just in terms of, um, you know, not understanding what the hell any of these things mean and what they are. And so I like, maybe I'm a little too inside baseball. And so to me, like, oh, yeah, sure, of course, why wouldn't you do long ball in your portfolio? But I think for a lot of other people, that's something completely alien to them. And so they don't understand it. Stocks and bonds have been around for a very long time. Gold has been around for a very long time. Um, and it, even that is still considered an alternative asset, which kind of blows my mind in terms of gold. Um, like to me, at a minimum, that should be your three basic building blocks for a portfolio. Um, and by the way, if you if you do that, like you know, forty percent stocks, forty percent bonds, twenty percent gold, or or forty five, forty five, ten. I think you're way ahead of the game compared to the vast majority of, of portfolios out there. So, you know, if, if you want to have a very, very simple portfolio, do that, rebalance it maybe on a quarterly, semi-annual, annual basis, and you're going to be good. You know, you guys are talking about, um, and I'd like to mention, a, talk about a few things that I had notes for myself after listening to some of your stuff. But um, so behaviorally speaking, I think one um, these things can be exotic and scary, so they're unfamiliar, okay? We have familiarity bias as, as investors. We want to invest in things we understand and we're comfortable with and we get and, um, and aren't too weird. Um, so th there's also this hurting uh, aspect to it in the sense that 
we're going to we're going to feel much more comfortable earning or holding the same thing that our neighbor does um you know it's that idea of buying the most popular whatever it is album uh, car what have you uh because there's wisdom in crowds right and and if you don't do what everyone else is doing then you know you're kind of sticking your neck out and and definitely from a, a regulatory standpoint that's definitely the case uh, <clears throat> regulators aren't in the business of making people super wealthy or um you know allowing things that are outside the norm into the system right um but there, but there are a lot of like interesting etfs that have come out over the last decade or so um i i think that um part of it is also the paradox of choice so like you said there's been this cambrian explosion there's so many etfs out there um there's so much noise it's hard to separate the signal from the noise in that and and the paradox of choice is really that when we get presented with too many choices we shut down we, we we almost don't make any choices instead we just say you know what i'll just go to a robo advisor and let them do it and, and by the way nothing against robo advisors they are fantastic and i think most people would benefit from using uh versus doing this themselves but um are robos with their 60 40 portfolios the most optimal thing probably not in my opinion where we are right now you want to have something beyond just 60 40 stocks and bonds um I think there's also this, like I said, this sort of um, uh, focusing on line items. So if I showed you an ETF where it shows negative compounded growth on a year after year basis, on a very consistent basis, you would say, Jug, you're out of your mind. Why the hell would I want to put this in my portfolio? And on its own, as an ingredient, you know, it looks like eating a raw piece of garlic. You don't want to do that, right? But if I put it into, uh, you know, my spaghetti sauce, it's... It's phenomenal, right? And and I think that's the problem is that people look at it line line item by line item rather than the collective whole, and and you know it's a gestalt. It's it's the sum is is greater than the, than the parts, and it's easy to lose sight of that. It's easy to just look at the returns for a given ETF and say, well, that looks terrible. I'm never going to buy that. Um, and you have to dig a little bit deeper. You have to kind of put it through a correlation matrix and see what's the impact on the portfolio and lo and behold something that looks awful and by the way you know like one of the etfs in my portfolio it annualizes at like negative 18 percent a year it's done that for almost 10 years and yet if i put it in my portfolio it it's so negatively correlated with everything else that it provides benefit and it, and it actually boosts my overall returns it's counterintuitive it, it's a non-linear thing and our brains are not built for understanding nonlinear things. That's why options are weird. And that's why correlation matrices or matrices are not intuitive to a human brain. You, you really have to go through and kind of do it and, and get a feel for it that you, under, that you start to understand. And, and so, you know, that's sort of the what shift. Sorry, I just wanted to butt in. You're reminding me of the mutiny fund from Taylor Pearson. I don't know if you've heard of him, yeah, but yeah. he actually yeah. introduced me to um, Matt uh, from Breaking the Market. Right. So I remember reading an update from the Mutiny Fund, basically him, to me as an amateur, he was sheepishly saying how it didn't increase in value over whatever the reporting right. period was. 
But right. now I have the context from you um, about because he he kept saying how in the in the context of a broader portfolio it would still be a useful or it one day would perform a useful function. So right. is is that what you're saying? Exactly, exactly. It's basically it's it's something that allows you to take more risk elsewhere in your portfolio. Okay, and so when you when you understand that right that like okay, I I'm carrying around this roll cage in my car that's adding a bunch of weight and it's annoying because I could go faster. But the roll cage is the thing that lets you drive faster, right? Because I know that I'm not going to die in this car. And, and that's the difference, right? So I can, I can take those corners a lot faster than I would otherwise because I have the safety of this thing around me. And so I can put more leverage or I can put more equities or I can do this or I can do that because I have this thing that when vol suddenly blows up, it's going to do really, really well. Right? We actually had lined Taylor up for an interview, but because of my misunderstanding about what he was doing, I, I sort of thought that it would be better for us to interview Matt. <laughs> I, I somehow thought that Taylor was failing at what he was trying to do, but now now you're saying actually his his job his job his job is not to bleed too much money along the way, so it's going to bleed right. That's what tail hedges do. That's that's there's kind of no way to get around that, but it's a question of how much money am I going to bleed? It's it's think of it exactly like an insurance policy. Okay, every month you write your insur you write your insurer a check, right? Whether it's car insurance or home insurance or life insurance, right? And you're not getting anything back for that. Not until something bad happens. When something bad happens, then they pay out, right? And, and so it, it, the, the expectancy of that is that it's going to be negative during the whole period of time that you're paying out. And ideally, here's the crazy thing, you hope that it never pays out. You hope that you wrote all these checks for nothing, right? Because being dead is not a great payout. And, and so like if, if we're taking the example of life insurance or having your house burned down for home insurance, you hope you never, ever have to uh, collect on that insurance. Sorry, go ahead, Ben. What if the insurance company goes under as well? And you're fucked. And so you have to pick your insurer properly, right? And that, what you're referring to is counterparty risk, right? So you have to make sure that you 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 pick wisely. And, and so this is a great point. Um, I don't know if you guys have read the big short, um, but, but one of the things that I took away from that, and I think is really important is, is understanding that you can get the call, right. Right. Like the one guy in there, I forgot his name, but he got the call, right. In terms of all these mortgages are going to fail. I want to take the other side of that trade. And his counterparty was one of these big banks. And basically they fucked him. They, they said, we're not paying out on this. Right. And, and so this is Ben's hero, Michael Burry. Right. Yes, ben exactly. Yes. About Right. And, and so, you know, there's, there's something to be learned there is that, you know, you, you have to pick your counterparty um, very carefully. Now, the nice thing about uh, using an ETF to express these types of things in terms of going long volatility or whatever, the underlying, like I said, is a futures contract. And, and so for the most part, it can be swaps. You kind of have to get into the nitty gritty of this to look at it. Um, but the, 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 the futures contracts are, done through a clearinghouse. The clearinghouse is like a bookie. Bookies basically balance their books, right? They make sure that there's um, equal amount of bets on the, on the winning side and on the losing side. And so they're delta neutral, right? In terms of their position on a given game or outcome, 
right? And that's exactly what a clearinghouse does. So every single futures contract has a buyer and a seller on each side of that contract. And so the, the, the clearinghouse makes sure that all of these things are centrally cleared and, and, and balanced. And then it's, it's, so let's say I'm a futures buyer, Will is a future seller. You then are responsible to deliver whatever you're supposed to deliver in terms of margin to your broker. And the broker will ext extract their pound of flesh from you in order to make sure that you deliver on what you're supposed to do on your futures contract. So, you know, there is, there are these inbuilt things in terms of like, there's a robust structure. To my knowledge, no futures clearinghouse has ever gone bankrupt. Um, you know, brokers might have gone bankrupt, but there's a whole system around, you know, they basically, there's regulators and, and insurance, uh, both public and private that steps in and ensures that, you know, nobody goes bust on that. I'm just um, wondering if there were any other behavioral or even neurological or biological factors you wanted to discuss sure. which prevent people from fully realizing the opportunity that you are highlighting of increasing geometric return through employing more than the typical three asset class. Right. Um, well, I think, you know, like I said, there's there's a lot of barriers um, to people building sort of optimal portfolios. Another one would be like uh, being uh, leverage averse, right? And even though, like, like I said, this has been known since the 1950s, like we've had modern portfolio theory for a long time now. And it's still something that I think the, the average investor and even you know, to a degree at the institutional level, um, this is not employed, right? It, it's it's because there are constraints, right? Like if, if you do something that is outside the norm from a, think about it from a career risk perspective, like if you're running a pension fund or you're running, you know, professional money, if you build an opt quote unquote optimal portfolio, even though Harry Markowitz with his Nobel prize told you this is the way to do it, but nobody else is doing it that way in terms of taking a 60, 40 portfolio and levering it, then if it blows up, what's going to happen? You know, you're going to get fired, right? And, and your children are now going to be wondering, how am I going to get my private school fees paid the for? The issue of career risk that I often hear um, right. fund managers talking about. Exactly. So, so, you know, sticking your neck out and doing something different than everybody else is risky, right? And it's risky for an individual because um, we seek this hurting behavior because it's easier to take your losses when everybody else is taking their losses, right? It's, it's easier to lose your shirt in 2008 because everyone else is doing the same thing, right? And it's, it's more um, euphoric to be, you know, part of the tech bubble than to sit out and watch everybody else make money. Right. So, so that's how we get sucked into these things uh, as human beings. We're, we're social creatures. We're seeking social proof and social acceptance. And so we're, we do these things because not necessarily the most optimal, but because they give us a, a warm feeling inside. Right. Um, uh, so we're confusing what our true goal is. So rather than generating a return, some people might actually have as a higher goal joining the crowd being right. respected by their peers and right. therefore their eye goes off the ball. Right. Right. We're, 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 we're optimizing something else now. Right. And, right. and so put a you got to, yeah. Seeking to optimize the right thing. Yeah. Right. And, and so I think that's a big part of it and, and you can't ignore that. I, I think that's part of being a human being um, is, is 
are these features, right? And, and you can see them as bugs. I think that they're just part of the framework that makes up who we are. Um, and by the way, I think it's also interesting that those, all the foibles, all the good things and bad things about us are also getting reflected in our machines and in our AI and our algorithms, right? They're picking up the same racism, the same, you know, like biases that we have. Um, and, and it's interesting. Um, I also have seen this on the investment side. Like I literally worked at a firm where, you know, we had these Korean guys running the first, like, you know, totally automated ETF in the world in terms of the portfolio manager was a machine, right? But it, it sounds great. It sounds like you're taking all the emotion out. But the reality is, is that you've just sort of, you've, you've taken the emotion and, and separated it by, uh, you know, a machine that still reflects all of our issues as human beings. Because this one machine was, was supposed to be doing everything, but I looked around and I saw about, you know, 12 different Korean programmers that were in our office that were like constantly... Uh, monitoring this algorithm, tweaking it, doing that, and the performance was terrible, right? Um, and, and, and I think that that's a, a real problem in quant finance and in terms of like this reliance on, on using algorithms and machines and all of that. I have a process, I, I believe in having a, a, a process and a framework and it should be quantitative to a large degree. But I, I also kind of, I, I'm more towards that kind of quantum mental approach in the sense that we as humans have these amazing things in our heads um, that are amongst the most complex things we can find in the universe, our wetware. And we shouldn't be afraid to allow that to express itself and, and be a part that, of that that's process. That's exactly the direction that Ben, so, so when Ben and I sort of started off, um, I, I realized a couple of episodes ago, I think it was basically um, at the end of Matt's interview, I sort of realized what, what it, it's kind of bifurcated um, the behavioral investing uh, approach. Uh, one, one school of thought or one camp is trying to take away emotions is trying to is mm -hmm. essentially lives in fear of the day that a human makes a decision uh, right. based on the assumption that it'll be filled with emotional overrides and it'll be incredibly uh, damaging um, to the uh, to your financial well-being. The other camp, and this is the direction I'm, I'm hoping to. I'm glad you, you brought this up. It's part of this uh, this this new new direction. I'm sort of saying is. How can we actually be as emotional as possible or maybe more to the point leverage um, our capacity for automatic processing that emotions are did, did ben want to add to that I, no okay um i yeah I, I think that there's a balance that can be struck there's there's going to be points like for example um rebalancing into the end of march of of 2020 was not a fun experience right even for me in the sense of like, you know, there's some things that I, you know, there were some assets that had just gone down. Like, you know, if you're looking at some of these things like a three times levered S&P 500 fund, it was down almost 75% during that period of time in, in from February 19 to March 23rd. Um, you know, am I super enthusiastic about rebalancing into that? No, you know, from a, an emotional perspective, hell no. And so, you know, I think, you have to have certain things that are are going to help ballast you in those moments. Now, the good news is, is that if your aggregate portfolio is is not down a lot, but but again, like I said, we as humans, we're always going to look in inside of that at the line items, right? And some of those things are up a lot, some of them are down a lot, and it's like crazy volatility. 
the the aggregate is one is working beautifully but but you know when you're actually doing this yourself in terms of rebalancing all of these different things um yeah you have to have a lot of dedication to your process and to understanding that in order for me to get this return you know whatever the return is you have to understand what went into that in the sense that like if the process says i have to rebalance quarterly right then you rebalance quarterly it doesn't matter if the quarter that just happened was horrendous for you or terrific for you you don't get to to kind of pick and choose now when I'm going to do my rebalance, right? You've got to do it. And, and so, you know, and, and there were actually funds out there that like they kind of delayed their rebalancings, right? During this window of time, because it was so volatile. Um, and, and sure, that's, that's a decision. I, I'm not saying it's the right or wrong decision, but it's a decision that was made. Um, but in my opinion, you know, like if if I'm looking at something and I'm saying, okay, the 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 back test shows me if I do X, Y, and Z, and I get this result, then you know I kind of have to mentally prepare for the fact that I'm going to do that no matter what, and and so ideally that is a type of thing I think that should be taken out of the the human hands, right? If you can do rebalancing on a on an automated basis, I think you're far better off. Um, because there's much more like, that's a, to me, a fail point that's, that's likely in terms of the, your emotional thing. I think where you can harness the insight and, and the human mind is understanding that like, okay, um, you know, like the long, short example I gave to you where, you know, no algorithm is going to be able to pick up on that in terms of like, here's a virus, here's how this would potentially play out in the global economy. And here's some sectors that that's a human thing right? That's, that's a human synthesizing information. And, and I think that that, that can be useful. I, I think that like, you know, you're starting to look at this narrative started to play out of, of inflationary growth, right? And, and that was a signal that you might start to pick up on when you're reading that everywhere. And it's like, okay, maybe I want to tilt a little bit into some, some inflationary sensitive commodities, right? And, and so I think that that's something that is, is harder to code. You can do it. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, but I kind of, I, I'm more of the mind that it, even if you do code it into something, we're better off doing something where we're tilting rather than having extremes in terms of I'm out of this asset, I'm into this asset. Um, instead, I would much rather hold this very broad basket that's thoughtfully put together and rebalance it on a regular basis. And then we could, you know, if you want to get a little more dynamic with it, you can do a little bit of tilting here and there, but that's really it, in my opinion. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think no matter what you do, the human is always going to be at the center of this. Whether you're programming this into a, into a computer as an algorithm, it's still a human that's deciding the parameters of that algorithm, always, right? And even if we're talking about machine learning, there's still a human that's feeding data into that into that machine learning uh, uh, system. A human is choosing which data sets to train exactly. the deep learning neural net on. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and you're also deciding which outputs are, are valid and, and you're, de you're developing a whole architecture around true. this. You define what the learning success is for the neural right. net. Yeah. So, so, so there's no, it's, it's kind of like in quantum theory, trying to, you know, take yourself as an observer out of the system. You can't. And the idea that I'm going to just create a machine and now I don't have human emotion involved, I think is a complete fallacy. And I think that people delude themselves if they believe that as quants. Um, 
you are making active decisions and bets no matter what. Even the S and P five hundred, you know, to talk about it as passive, I think is a misnomer because no, the it's truth not. There's a meeting to define right. to decide which goes in, and Tesla exactly. should have been in based on the rules of the largest uh, right. company much much earlier than it was. Right. So, so you know, that's that's I think a great example. You hit the nail right on the head with with Tesla, and and so I I think that you know this this idea we kind of this is the mental game that we play with ourselves as humans is the belief that we can kind of like divorce ourselves and our emotions from all of this. I, what I would say is this in terms of like how do I approach behavior and and um, and and all of that in terms of investing, I think the best approach is really having a portfolio that is is not going to behave in a way that you can't tolerate it, you can't deal with it, you know? So, so you have to have a portfolio that conforms to your um, makeup as, as, as a human being. And I think that's, that varies person to person. Some people are very contrarian in their nature. I, I would say I'm a little bit like that. I'm an only child. I've never really felt the same kind of pressure to kind of fit in with everybody else. Um, and so for me, it's totally natural to do something that's outside the norm. I don't really care what other people are doing. It doesn't matter to me that much. Um, but I think for a lot of other people, that would be very difficult. Um, you know, they're not inside their heads maybe as much as I am. So I, I think, you know, I had mentioned to you that you kind of have to have this utility function of this is who I am. This is what I'm trying to do. Um, and, you know, this would be sort of a, a portfolio that, 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 reflects those views and, and how I am as a human being. And, and if it, it, it fits with all of that, then you're more likely to stay on the path. And I think that's the most important thing. There is no one optimal portfolio. There's many, many paths to roam. And what you have to find is a road that you're comfortable taking because the worst thing you can do is jump off of whatever road you've been going on onto some other road that you have no idea where it's going and how it works and, and who, you know what I mean? Like you're going to get turned around and you'll never make it to Rome. So, so you gotta, whatever path you choose, you gotta stick with it. And like I said, if you're going through hell, keep going because eventually you'll get through it. And, and I think as a behavioral management approach, then uh, success for you is, in a time of low emotional turmoil, coming up with a set of rules, and then your uh, successful behavioral investing for you is staying the course through the yes. time of emotional turmoil. A guy like Warren Buffett, right? He's built differently than most people. Him and Charlie Munger, and people often forget about Munger, but that dude is a serious shark and very, very bright and, and big reason for why they get the returns that they get, is that they both understand that like, okay, this is the path we've chosen. We're, we're going to be these people that we believe in America, we believe in the stock market, and come hell or high water, you know, the best approach that we've seen is, is owning great companies for the long run. And there's going to be times along the way where our portfolio might drop by 50, 60%. And that's just the way it is, right? And if you have the emotional tolerance for that, God bless you, go, go do your thing, you know, but for most people, I would say that's probably not the case. I, I think that ideally, you know, the way I think about it and the hedges that I have, they're, there are these parachutes that slow time down and allow me to be able to make adjustments if I need to in real time without panic, right? So like I said, you know, when when we saw that that drop from February 19th to March 23rd, 
that's a 34% drop in the S&P 500. That's the fastest that we've ever seen, even faster than the Great Depression, faster than the global financial crisis. Um, it, was, it was petrifying, right? And, and what gives you solace is seeing, okay, I'm not, my portfolio isn't doing that. Like it's, it's, it's dipped a little bit, but it's like barely budged. And so that gives you um, the ability to be able to like, okay, do I need to make an adjustment here? Don't I? How do I feel? I could have cashed out if I wanted to. You know, yeah, I, I think what, what you bought yourself there or what you've devised for yourself is a system which doesn't activate the limbic brain. Right, exactly. Bought yourself a chance which others didn't have to remain directed by your neocortex. What I'm doing here is I'm... So you made a great comment in your notes about what we would talk about in the interview. You said here that we need to understand our true risk tolerance and the fact that we're governed by our limbic system, but not the neocortex. It seems like through not going through the volatility event that everyone else went through, which would have triggered their limbic system, which would have caused emotional overrides and kicked them out of the market, basically. Mm-hmm. You, you didn't go through that stress. So you got to remain directed by your neocortex. You were able to continue analyzing where others went into emotionalizing, if you like. Right. And, and, but so what's interesting though, is that like, it's not that, you know, that risk doesn't just go away completely. Like, you know, the drawdowns change when they happen changes. Right. So like now the last couple of months have been kind of rough, right? Like down about six, seven, eight percent year to date. Right. And so you're going to take your lumps. It's not like, you know, I've built this thing that's perfect and will never have a drawdown. Like that's not the case. It's just the drawdowns are different. And I'm not super correlated to what's happening in the, in the stock market specifically. Right. So you can't, you know, uh, Corey Hofstein is, is a guy that you should hopefully get on your podcast at some point. But, you know, one of the things he says is, um, you know, risk can't be created or destroyed it can just be you know transferred and so we 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 kind of take our risks uh, you know there's a certain amount of risk in in whatever distribution it's a question of is it going to live out in the extreme tails or is it going to live closer to the mean where i i see it on a more regular basis and i know my preference is to see that risk on a more regular basis rather than on the more extreme ends of the tail and so what that means is, is that like you know you're going to take your lumps more regularly, but you see what those lumps are going to be, if that makes sense. That distribution is more sort of transparent to you because the risk is, is in, the, in the main body of that, of that normalized distribution. The thing that's scary or should be scary to investors is the left tail risk, right? Because you don't know what that looks like until it happens. And, and so as much as possible, if we can squish that down, or truncated, then we've pushed that risk over, right? If you think of that, that normalized distribution, if I cut off that left tail, it doesn't go away. I'm just pushing that area under the curve to the right. And, and I'm pushing it hopefully throughout the whole distribution that's remaining, if that makes sense. Excellent. Um, we normally wrap up our podcast with a couple of questions that you may have heard on previous episodes. Um, but I hope you entertain us by allowing us to ask these. Sure. The first one is we've solved the physical hygiene problem. We've all used soap and we wash our hands. What about mental hygiene, though? What should we start doing as a mental hygiene equivalent of washing our hands? In regards to? 
Um, in regards to uh, mental hygiene, um, so we're talking about behavioural investing, what, what things can we do uh, mentally, um, what activities should we be doing or what, you know, some hosts in the past have answered that by saying, you know, use checklists, others have said meditate. From your view, what should we be doing to have better mental health? Um, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm qualified to give advice on um, I, 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 here's how I would respond to that. I, I think that it might be the wrong approach. And I say this gently to you guys, because I know big on this idea of mastering oneself in order to be successful at investing. I would posit to you that that's a fool's error, that we can't really control ourselves as humans. We, we have this idea that we do, but you're fighting against, as Will and yourself have pointed out, hundreds of thousands of, of years of evolution as, as homo sapiens. And the idea that I'm going to be able to control my limbic system and all the stuff, I think is a bunch of horseshit. I think that what you need to do is build a portfolio that doesn't trigger any of that to begin with. And, and if you do that, then you have a much higher level of, of chance at success. And, and you also have to understand that our monkey brains also want to participate in these like bubbles and all of that. And that's fine. And that's where you do bet sizing. That's where you do a very, very small portion to scratch that itch. Um, and, and, you know, it allows you to, to, and even if you want to take a small sliver of your portfolio and go day trade it, like, like a maniac, feel free, you know, as long as the amount of money that you lose isn't going to blow you up in any material way as an investor. Um, you know, if, if you want to waste your time doing that, feel free, you know, but, but I, I, I think honestly that this idea that I'm going to be able to like, you know, uh, become, become a Zen master. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say a Jedi Knight or something like that, where, where I'm going to be able to control all these things. I, I just don't really buy into that. I think. Yeah. That, I, I've had a similar view. I think I made a, a a tweet about that you know basically maybe as behavioral investors what we simply need to do is become familiar with, with what our instincts are how they're activated and as you say just um take a path that doesn't activate them. right and uh, like i think it, it's really simple like we we do have this amazing central nervous system and brain and all of that 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 it tells you when you're taking too much risk. I'm sure Will at some point when you were doing your stuff with Bitcoin, you were probably, you know, waking up at night thinking, what the hell? You know, like you were obsessing about it, right? And then I'm sure when you were levering up your stocks during the global financial crisis, that did not feel comfortable. There was some part of you that told you, I don't want to do this. Like I, you know, this is not a good idea. And, and so our central nervous systems are these highly tuned things that have kept us out of danger for a long time. And, and I don't think the idea of suppressing that or ignoring that, or, or you could do all the yoga and meditation you want, it's still there, right? And, and so, and believe me, I'm the type of person, like I, I'm not the type of person that has racing thoughts through my head. I, I, I've been in my head for my entire life and I, I, like, I have a lot of control over my thought processes. Even then, I still understand, like I experience fear when, you know, there's a lot of money potentially getting evaporated out of my portfolio. And, and so, like, it doesn't matter how zen I am about whatever, like, at the end of the day, 
you know, when you're taking food out of my family's mouth, I'm going to panic, right? And and that's what it feels like, you know, when the market starts to to move in a way that that is is not the way you hoped, and and so I I, I think that we have to understand our personal risk tolerances, and what I was trying to get at with the idea about like understanding our risk tolerance and it being more of a limbic thing rather than a neocortex thing is that my issue is very often or almost always when you go to a brokerage when you go work with an advisor they're going to give you a questionnaire right and it's going to say you know here's what like i here's how i feel about this or here's how i feel about that i'm looking for this type of portfolio and and they're trying to gauge your risk tolerance the problem with that is that when you're filling out this questionnaire what part of your brain is being engaged right it's the neocortex. It has nothing to do with how you're actually going to experience risk. And in my opinion, like ideally, like when I kind of get my wealth management firm set up and all of that, my ideal would be to have a gamification way of doing it, where if if I'm suggesting, you know, XYZ portfolio to you, I would, you would have an app you'd put on your phone and you would go play this game that's a simulator, like a stock simulator thing. And it would have the same sort of return distribution, volatility, all of this stuff as what I'm suggesting to you so that you can actually see, you know, test drive it by playing the game and see, you know, because our monkey brain needs to be engaged with this to see. Yeah, or or you could get them to watch a horror movie or play Doom or something, get, get them in an emotionally activated state. Right. And, 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 and so I, I think, you know, this, there's this lie that we tell ourselves that, you know, I want this portfolio. The doom investment management firm. <laughs> right. So, so but, but the also, also the interesting thing is, is that our risk preferences change on the context, right? Like depending on how you frame risk and the situation that you're in, um, like, for example, I felt way more risk during this whole coronavirus thing than I did during the global financial crisis. And I think the reason why is because to me, this was like a much more larger systemic thing where like all of society could potentially get ripped apart rather than just some banks go down. Don't get me wrong. You know, global financial crisis was a big deal. Capitalism almost ended, but you know, it wasn't potentially like a virus that's going to wipe out all of humanity. Right. And so I, I, I think that that, that aspect to it matters. It's that, you might have a given risk tolerance, but if certain variables change, that tolerance can change very drastically. And so, so basically, the, your, your point is that the human, every organism really, every mm-hmm. organism with a brain has emotional overrides built in. And it's, it's literally physically impossible to stop an emotional override, to stop the limbic system taking control at certain points. And overall, when there is massive risk and volatility, and the brain is exposed to that, it will be triggered. No amount of mental hygiene, you can't wrest control back from the limbic system. I, I think you can given some time, right? Like, but in that moment, yeah, you're gonna feel it. And, and so I, don't get me wrong. Like I, I, there was an idea that I think Ben had about uh, not trading for at least a month right? In terms of like sort of having a rule in place. If you can stick to that, I think that's brilliant, right? Like that's a great way to calm that whole thing in the sense that if you are experiencing- yeah, That's also the same as what you said. You, you yeah. basically just need to step to the side. Essentially avoid triggering the limbic system or avoid triggering the emotional overrides. 
Right, but because the limbic system isn't going to stay kicked in the entire time, right? It's it's this thing that kicks in and then it subsides. In fact, that's exactly how volatility markets work, right? What happens is is that it's it's like our heart rate. Your heart rate gets really elevated, but then eventually it reverts back to its normal sort of level, right? And and so it's it's the same thing with our limbic system. It's the same thing with anything that there's this stress response. You can't be running on adrenaline 24 seven. It just can't happen because eventually your body just is like, okay, I'm done, right? Like I can't do this anymore. So, so I think that if you can have the pausing of things that helps a lot. And if you can stick to it, great. I just, I, I think the, the better approach, in my opinion, is just not put yourself in a position where you're taking so much risk that you have to have a rule that I can't do anything for a month, right? Like it, th that to me indicates that you're just taking too much risk for what you're actually comfortable with, if that makes sense. Now, okay, if the so rule, we've got if, two answers there, reduce your, your risk, but also take a pause. Yes. Yeah. I, I think you can do both. Like, but the key is really, I think inside your gut, deep inside your gut, you know, what is your risk tolerance and, right. and you have to, you have to be aligned with that. No matter, you know, how wonderful your portfolio manager is, no matter how wonderful your system is, whatever, whatever, at the end of the day, you are going to experience some level of risk and that has to align with what you're capable of taking as a human being. And, sure. and, and your point is that usually the way of measuring risk tolerance is done in a period of calm. Right. We're sitting in a, in, a, in a waiting room with elevator music playing when right. it should be after you've just watched, I don't know, the um, storming the beach scene from Saving Private Ryan or something. Or even better, I think what would be better is tell me a story about a time when you felt really sick to your stomach about a bunch of risk that you took, right? And and I and going back and re-experiencing that, because we as humans are capable of doing that, right? Like we can go back and go back to our our post-traumatic stress and all of that and re-experience these things. And why? Because they're useful tools, right? This is why we have nightmares. It's so that it it's a way to simulate really bad things in an emotional way. This and then, is also the episodic future thinking point from our first uh, interview with with a psychologist, um, mm -hmm. Tom Watts. Right. So yeah. I, I think I think if you can draw upon those memories and it's like, I'm getting this feeling in my stomach like I did, you know, when I was levered up on my on my stocks, or I'm getting this feeling like I'm trading like an idiot, like I was with Bitcoin, then that's a moment that you should be like, okay, I need to hit pause on this, or I need to go to cash right now and just sort of sort myself out or not make any changes right now and sort myself out. Um, and, and I think that those can be helpful uh, tools in terms of like trigger points, right? And and I, like I said, I, I think that experience is in tremendously valuable. That's the thing that you can draw upon to make yourself a better investor, because you have okay. to make those mistakes. Yep. All right. So you 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 you've sidestepped the first uh, question by saying we need to sidestep uh, things. Let let let's see <laughs> if uh, we can get a response out of you uh, for for our last one. Okay. Um, did I sidestep it? <laughs> That's fine. You were good. You were good. I loved it. Okay. Okay. I, I don't mean That's to sidestep. If, 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 if I'm being evasive, then call me on my bullshit. I'll, I'll answer it more directly. No, 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 no. No, I, I liked it. I, I, I was just teasing you. Okay. <laughs>
Um, so you, carrying on, uh, you, you, you mentioned Rome uh, briefly before. So the, the final question is, so human sacrifice is no longer common. It used to be a part of many cultures around the world and was banned, for example, in Rome in 97 BC. So what is something that we routinely do now, which will be looked upon in 2000 years from now as highness? I thought about this because I heard you ask this question before, and I would say eating meat. And, and by the way, I, I, I'm like, I love eating meat. I eat animals all the time. But uh, having said that, am I happy about the conditions that they're raised in? Um, you know, and do I feel I have to eat meat? No, I don't. I enjoy it. I, you know, sadly, I'm, that's the way I am. And if, if I could eat like lab grown meat tomorrow that, that, you know, was available to me at a decent price, I would happily do it. Um, because I, I don't think that's sort of the ideal thing for humans to be doing is, is raising, you know, billions of animals to, to basically be our food. Um, to kill off in factories. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I admire, like I, my wife has a, um, a supplier and the, the guy who runs this company is a remarkable human being in that he literally hunts all of the food, the protein that he feeds to his family. And this guy is like kind of remarkable in that he here in downtown Toronto was looking to get a falconry license so that he could get a falcon and like have it hunt like, you know, uh, game in the city. So you can potentially do this apparently, like, you know, in an urban center, go get a falcon and train it to go catch you raccoons and like this and that, like the dude's hardcore and, and hunts with a bow and arrow and all of this stuff. And I was just like, that's nuts. But I admire the hell out of him because, you know, I, I think that's, that's fantastic. Like he- He actually he, has the guts to kill an animal and eat it. Right, right, Most exactly. People, I remember I saw a I did work experience on a farm once. I nearly threw up, or at least I was I was repulsed by the the farmer beheading a, a chicken and then right. you know having to um, pull the feathers out of it. Right, right. I see I, that doesn't bother me. Like I, I I visited India and like the whole thing was we would go to the market and like that's how you buy a chicken. It's like you know they would you pick the chicken and you know they slash its throat open and throw it in the bucket and it's flapping around and all of that. I didn't have to clean it myself, but I, I, I don't have like, I don't have an issue with, with killing animals. We've done it for a long time. We're omnivores by our sort of nature, but, um, but the factory farming thing I think is problematic. And, you know, if, if I could not do that, not participate in that, that would be a good thing. I think 2000 years down the road. Yeah, for sure. I think we'll look back. Now there's a big, um, you know, sort of assumption in your question that we're going to be around in 2000 years. I hope that's the case. I hope that's the case. What will um, ETFs be like then? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we're way beyond money and all that stuff by then. Um, but, you know, one thing I, I was going to share and your hygiene question kind of triggered it for me was that, uh, you know, one thing that makes me really optimistic about the future is my son is almost three and, you know, he's had to learn about the virus and all of that. And one of the things that I've been doing is kind of showing him all these videos on germs. We've just been trying to teach him to like wash his hands and the importance of that. And what's amazing to me is that in the span of like a few days, he, he became obsessed with watching all these YouTube videos, cartoons, you know, 
teaching kids about germ theory and about, you know, the importance of washing hands and stuff. And what's staggering to me is that like in, in that span, this little human that's three years old is almost three years old has learned about germ theory, a thing that took our species, you know, millennia to figure out and and like it, it's incredible it was only 170 years ago that um right. they discovered about washing your hands and this was exactly. i think from uh jim o'shaughnessy's uh infinite loops um podcast uh that's where i first heard about this, this right this shocking idea that it's only been 170 years that we've known exactly. about the importance of washing right. hands you know and, and and when you think about how like now you take that idea and now we have this communication network like YouTube where now I can put that in a cartoon, make it easily understandable that a three-year-old can understand something that previous to like 200 years ago, no other human understood. That's incredible, right? And, and, and that's, I think, the power of the ability for us to change things very quickly as a species on this planet. The thing that really gets me excited is not AI. It's, it's the fact that we have almost 8 billion brains on this planet and if we actually allowed every one of those brains to come to its full potential how many problems are we going to be able to solve right and so you know i i, I was going to say to you guys that like you know investing is this weird thing where we have to have this optimistic view of the future um or else why would we invest right investing is inherently an optimistic activity but while simultaneously understanding all the pitfalls and dangers on the way to arriving to that optimistic future. And, and that's a weird place to be. You have to kind of simultaneously hold this optimistic while understanding all the things that can go wrong. And to me, that actually is very much of like Eastern philosophy in the sense that like my family, like I said, comes from India, my background is Sikhism. Um, and there's literally like a, a, a concept within Sikh philosophy of jardikala, which is having a positive outlook on life. And while at the same time toiling in the, the realities of our world, right? And maintaining that optimistic outlook and oneness with the universe and our creator and all of that. And not that I'm super religious. In fact, I'm pretty much an atheist. But what's interesting to me in Eastern philosophy is this idea of, of holding two things simultaneously in one's head that can be very... Um, at first pass, uh, paradoxical. And, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, that's, that's sort of like within Buddhism, within Hinduism, within Sikhism, um, there's this idea that we, we live in reality, but it's not really reality. There's, there's this deeper reality to everything. And so, but the only way we can experience anything beyond this reality is to live in this physical body. So it's a weird paradox, right? Like we, we live in this falsehood, that we then the challenge is to go past that to this deeper truth. And I think, you know, from a behavioral perspective, that, that's an interesting thing in, in terms of being able to have strong beliefs that are loosely held. And, and I think a successful investor is really good at that. And, and I've tried Where to cultivate that. I've, I've heard that phrase. Um, it's, I, I don't know, it's just a saying within investing, but, it, but to me, yeah. it's, it's something that I, I definitely resonates with me um, because you know, you, you can kind of believe this narrative that you've come up with, especially I think value investors do this a lot, is that they believe in the company and there's this intrinsic value. And, the, and you know, you can just be plain out wrong about that. And you have to be willing to kind of change your thesis if, if you know, it's 
fundamentally wrong, but also understand, you know, there's a difference between being fundamentally wrong versus just this is the way that things are going, but ultimately I will be right. Um, there's a faith aspect to value investing that to me is very religious in a lot of ways. And, and okay. you have to be, you have to be deeply uh, a believer in that to, to be successful. Um, uh, I have seen, I, I, I feel that there are some cultish elements. I, I, sometimes I, people might have I don't want to bring up Warren Buffett too much because, frankly, I think there is a cult around him. Um, so yeah, like I, I think that um, that's that's an idea that I wanted to mention.